How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, many more mutations. The Bop Crew is continuing our commentary series for the X-Men movies with, well, I mean, should be a surprise, last time was X-Men, this time it's X2, X-Men United. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today for this Bop in a Movie are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. Uh, fun X-Men fact, uh, Ronnie in the movie universe would later go on to become Bastion the future Sentinel, who would come back in time to uh, destroy the X-Men. That was certainly a fact. I don't know if fun or not, but we'll let the audience decide. Uh, and say hello to my other co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. I can only manipulate the fire. I can't create it. That would be How a major emo bummer, though. I do you have see... to be? No, I think he's right. This is a bummer. Like, if your power is, well, you can't conjure fire. If there's some around, you can play with it. Oh my it. god, fire's only the easiest thing to fucking make. You have a lighter, Pyro, for God's sake. Your costume is a fire factory. You can make fire with two goddamn fucking sticks. Tom Hanks did He doesn't did it. have time for that. The cops are coming up on him. He's got to be out there playing Boy Scout. It doesn't work. I don't know. I would love Pyro to fucking take out two sticks that are like dramatically have like sharks, sharks teeth like carved into them, <laughs> kneel <laughs> down and just start fucking rubbing them back and forth. Hold on, I need about five minutes for this to work. He's out there with, like, a bunch of crumpled up newspaper and a magnifying glass. Where the X-Men and the Brotherhood are running at each other, like it's the opening of X-Men the Animated (laughs) Series, and he's just rubbing two sticks together, just kind of, like, lightly. Finally, there's a spark, and he can can do something. It goes out, though, with a a rough wind. He's just getting bullied by Iceman relentlessly. (laughs) I can make the ice. Mmm... I would love it if Iceman could only manipulate the ice, but he couldn't create it. <laughs> he could I still could only make it melt. I can just throw ice cubes at you. That's it. 
Anyway, we're doing commentary for X-Men 2, X-Men United. X-Men 2, X-Men United. The title is just a fun thing to say. The least used subtitle in movie history. (laughs) I think Curse of the Black Pearl is said aloud more often. It was, it's, it's, it's very good with the subtitle gets lightly dunked on in the commentary track. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, before we actually start the commentary, uh, let's, let's go over our official drink of the evening. Uh, this one's going to take some prep. So put this episode on pause after I give the description of it and come back in like two days and then drink along with us. Anyways, uh, tonight's drink is the Black Betty. What you're going to need for ingredients is an ounce and a half of silver tequila. A uh, half ounce of creme de casas, uh, one ounce lime juice, a quarter ounce of uh, uh, black sesame syrup, which I'll, I'll tell you how to make in just a second, uh, an egg white, a half teaspoon of activated charcoal, and uh, the garnish we're, I'm going to tell you how to make too, but you need dehydrated beetroot sugar. <laughs> Cody, this sounds more like homework than recreation. This sounds expensive. Yes. <laughs> this drinking should not be fun. It should be a task. <laughs> that you you throw yourself into to overcome. Anyways, uh, this takes a lot of prep. So let, let's before we worry about mixing the final drink and whether it tastes good, which I can't tell you, I haven't tried it yet. Uh, we got we got to take a step back and let's focus on making the black sesame syrup. So what you're gonna need is uh, take about two cups of black sesames uh, and and toast them in a pan lightly. I'm gonna be honest, I couldn't find black sesame, uh, so I just used normal sesame seeds. And we're going to assume that's fine. Also, two cups of that seems expensive, so you're fine just getting the regular shit. Anyways, after you've toasted this stuff lightly, let it cool down, then throw it into a blender. Next, get uh, a cup and a half of sugar and a cup and a quarter cup of water. Throw that together, bring it to a simmer. Once the sugar's dissolved, then throw the blended sesame seeds back into the mix. Bring that to a boil over medium heat. Let that cool for three hours. Once totally cooled, go ahead and get out some cheesecloth or a really fine mesh and strain out all the sesame seed bits. And uh, while you're at it, add one teaspoon of orange blossom water and an ounce of vodka. They actually uh, sell like little tiny mini bottles of vodka with orange blossom water. So you don't have to get those separate. You don't have to like, go find some orange blossom water. You can, just, you can just buy one of those mini vodka bottles. And there you go. That's, that's your syrup. Ah, now let's focus on our garnish. So you're going to need to buy far, uh, far, four large beets, and uh, then you're going to have to juice those. So I've never juiced beets before. Basically, all I did was chop them up with a kitchen knife, throw them into a blender, uh, and then just try to strain all the pulp out through a, a mesh strainer. Uh, the pulp is what you want, though. You actually don't need the juice, which is a shame because you produce a shit ton of juice by doing this. I threw mine out because I have no need in my life for beet juice. But maybe you do. It seems healthy. Anyways, take that pulp that you have created, wring out the excess juice, like in a towel, uh, then spread the pulp onto a baking tray. Put the baking tray in an oven or a dehydrator uh, at at about 120 degrees, you know, low heat, uh, and leave it in there until the pulp is completely dry. This is going to take a couple of hours. Once all that's done, take your dry pulp, add it to a grinder or blender with a half cup of sugar, blitz that into a fine powder, and there you go. Nothing to it. So that's prep work. That's all done. We're ready now, right, to make the drink? So, take your ingredients, combine all of them into a mixing tin, and dry shake. Then, add ice, shake again for about 15 seconds. Uh, that should cool it down, and the dry shake should allow the uh, the egg to kind of foam up the way you want it to. 
Then strain all that into a small rocks glass, no ice. Once you've got a good pour, you're going to garnish the top with beetroot sugar. That should float on top of the foam uh, from the egg, and you get a really neat drink that's pretty much pitch black thanks to the activated charcoal with kind of a grayish white foam on the top, and then the beetroot sugar sprinkled on top of that foam. It looks pretty cool as far as drinks go. <sighs> I'm going to take a sip of this now and see if this was all worthwhile. This is fantastic. Oh, thank God. This is, <laughs> this is, this is a wonderful drink. I'm, oh my God, I'm so happy. <laughs> I was really hoping everyone was going to make that along with you spending several days and what sounds like at least $80 it wasn't... making that. And you take a sip and like, oh, oh I've well, let you destroy folks at home. <laughs> well, let's back up here. I mean... Cost-wise, you can get the tequila for 20 Uh, You can get the creme de casas for about 10 if you get a cheap brand, 15 with a little bit nicer one. And you can reuse those, I'm assuming. Uh, lime juice, that's cheap. That's like 2 bucks, and you can use that for plenty of things. Beets, that's a handful of dollars. That's not bad. A bag of sugar is pretty cheap. Eh, sesames are kind of expensive. That's like $5 for a cup or so. So that sucks. You could, you could probably just make this with simple syrup if you want to be basic, I guess. Cody, absolutely nothing about those instructions could ever be basic. <laughs> well, that was kind of the point. Uh, if you remember, folks, from the previous commentary, the, the drink suggestion was uh, ginger ale. So I wanted to go the opposite direction this time. If the first drink is just laying the ground works for drinking and watching a movie, this is where we really let the action fly. This is the X2 X-Men United of drinks in my mind. We have stepped it up. We have made a much <laughs> fancier concoction. Boom. <laughs> Does that mean for the last stand, you're just going to cut out most of the steps and leave the listeners confused? Uh, for the last stand, I'm just going to take the bag of activated charcoal and dump it in my mouth and die. <laughs> Sounds tasty. <laughs> uh, speaking of the activated charcoal, though, that stuff fucking sucks. Like, it's, it's a very fine black powder that gets everything dirty. Like, I opened my bag and just sent a giant cloud of it into my, my apartment and now, like, every time I touch my fridge or grab a glass, everything is just covered in soot. We've been recording for ten minutes. <laughs> yeah, but you have a baller drink. All right. So anyways, folks, now that you're ready to start drinking and watching the movie, Mike's going to count us down when he gets to uh, whatever he's using for his countdown. I'm assuming one, two, three. The movie's going to play. We're going to talk over it. You can watch the movie with us, or you can treat this as a normal standalone podcast. It's your life. You do what you want. I'm not your dad. Sound good? I think the audience is ready. Mike, are you ready? I am ready. All right. Do us the honors, Mike, and count us down. One, two, three. Goddamn, I'm so happy this drink turned out. We're very proud of you, and we're very proud of the drink, Cody. Yeah, oh, it's, it's good. We'll, we'll frame the drink. We'll put it in the shadow box. Mmm. <laughs> the only good drink we made so far. For every fly that ends up in the drink, a year has passed. <laughs> All right, folks, uh, let's get our movie facts out of the way here. Directed by Brian Singer. X-Facts! Uh, directed Ew. by Brian Singer. Oh, Jamie, what? No, I was just adding to the X-Facts Just a guitar riff, you know. Okay. Marvel logo, I, I, by I like the way. Yay. Yay, comic flipping. Uh, the screenplay, once again, by David Hayter, uh, Dan Harris, and Michael Doherty. Hater returned from the first film, but uh, this time we get our two extra guys with them. Doherty and Harris are a writing team, and uh, yeah, they wrote Urban Legends, Bloody Mary, and Superman Returns, so good for them. Uh, our cast here, boy, there's a lot of great names. Patrick Stewart, 
uh, is Professor X, Hugh Jackman is Wolverine, Ian McKellen is Magneto, Halle Berry is Storm, Bonka Jensen returns to Jean Grey, James Marston is Cyclops, Anna Paquin is Rogue, Sean Ashmore is Iceman, Rebecca Romaine is Mystique, Whew, and a couple of new faces. We've got Brian Cox as uh, William Stryker, we have Alan Cumming as Nightcrawler, Aaron Stanford as Pyro, and Kelly Hu as Deathstrike. Big old cast! Big, big cast. Uh, if you're listening to the movie right now, you can hear that big old score. This time, the music is by John Ottman. Uh, I had to double-check this because I thought Ottman was an editor. He won the Oscar for Best Film Editing on Bohemian Rhapsody. But he's also a composer and a director. He gave us scores for uh, H20, Lake Placid, Urban Legends Final Cut. Uh, he also directed that movie. Eight-Legged Freaks, Bubble Boy, House of Wax, the remake, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and pretty much all the singer movies. Our cinematography here is by Newton Thomas Siegel. Uh, he's returning from X-Men. Uh, the editing is also by John Ottman. This was released May 2nd, 2003. The first one came out summer of 2000, so actually a decent amount of time between entries. Uh, our runtime is 2 hours 13 minutes. Budget was $110 million. Pretty good step up since uh, the previous X-Men, I believe, was $75 million, about. Uh, our worldwide box office was $407.7 million. Uh, which is about $100 million more than the first movie made. So even though the budget jumped up about $30 million, hey, still making good money. Boom. X-Facts. And now we get to see the best scene in the whole movie. <laughs> Cody likes Nightcrawler. I like Nightcrawler a lot. He Don't is the best mutant. As a kid watching this movie... Holy shit. It's just the first scene is everything I could have possibly wanted from an X-Men movie. Everything after this was just a bonus. I got to see a scene of Nightcrawler acrobatting and bamfing his way through the White House and just taking out Secret Service agents like they were nothing. And taking out copyright-free George Bush. <laughs> and what a fucking, he like... He had it coming. Gauntlet mission, mission statement the movie throws out. Hey, remember the first movie? Here's Nightcrawler bamfing around and doing acrobatics and fighting people. I love how this movie opens with an action scene that is more energetic and dynamic than the entire third act of the first movie. Uh, Let's opening on a high note. It's so cool. I mean, this is perfect. If you have an X-Man, you want to be able to do the crazy shit. There's something deeply rewarding about seeing Nightcrawler's bamfing used in a modern action scene yes <laughs> like, that was the amazing thing watching this for the first time it's like oh that is how nightcrawler would fight <laughs> i've always dreamed Spider-Man it's... swing for the first time it's like oh yeah that's how it would work oh man and it's think of like other action scenes that have this quality to them i i have very few i'm not saying other movies have bad action but this one is just such a unique idea this guy can teleport everywhere. Also, he can flip around and kick you in the face five times, and he looks like he's some sort of blue demon. Oh, it's fascinating to watch this and see the through line that leads all to all the way to the Quicksilver scene in Days of Future Past. <laughs> uh, man. Plus, we have Mozart in the background, so let's just make this even more epic. Just, just throw some... And now slow motion. motion. Slow motion kicks to the face, wire work, people getting thrown all over the place. God damn, so cool. And uh, just a like, little like filming fact, this was done with a high-speed camera, and uh, Singer's use of the high-speed camera here would later uh, influence how he shot Quicksilver. 
makes perfect sense. Uh, also, if you pay attention to Nightcrawler, sometimes he has a CGI tail. Most of the time, he has a CGI tail. In other shots, though, he actually has a rubber tail. Yeah. So it's a neat little blend they have going. And even that and was I, a I cool like effect thing. where it was a practical knife being handed to him, but they just painted out the, the hand and replaced it with the tail. Yeah. Oh, and now Canada. It's no Nightcrawler. Uh, to to go back to Nightcrawler, because that's all I want to talk about. I love the little bit of personality they gave his tail. Like when it yeah. flips the knife around to hand, <laughs> to put it in the hand. Those little tiny quirks uh, really help sell CGI. Well, the Even tail is comic book fun time, Nightcrawler. It really is. <laughs> Just the tail. Oh, yeah. So, hey, actually, Wolverine. <laughs> Just reveling in the fact that they finally got his hair right. Give him a stogie. He's got the hair. And in that shot, he's wearing that weird, like, cap wig because his Van Helsing hair is, like, stuffed up in there. <laughs> I loved it when they admitted that fact on the commentary. I love for one sequence he just has Barry Windsor Smith hair. <laughs> for when he's <laughs> staring at a wolf, so it's, like, perfect. I was like, you mentioned, like, yeah, we, this, we had a three-year gap between the release of the first film and this. Like, I think the, the kind of the elephant in the room, and that is, between these two movies, we saw Spider-Man grace the screens. And I feel like you can see the freedom that the, existing, the existence of Spider-Man granted future directors, like, all over this movie. It's like, okay. Spider-Man exists. That made all the money in the world. Sony is very happy with their crazy superhero movie. Fox can unclench its asshole and let us make an <laughs> X-Men movie. I love the slow transition of Wolverine into this growling uh, Arctic Fox wolf thing. Comic panel. Well, just you can see that even with... Um... I mean, just more powers, more how freely they're using code names. <laughs> just the I'll general comic bookiness isn't as hidden as it was previously. Yeah. Well, with the additional budget here, everything feels a little more pumped up. We mentioned in the first commentary how great it was with the limited budget, how instead of just trying to go for lots of fistfights, there were some decent psychological kind of standoffs happening. And in this one, now they have more cash, so they can have a blend of that stuff. And now when they go into the big fisticuff scenes, it, it feels much better. That, that lady is, is, is so pissed off that Fam K. Jensen is checking her out. She's so tall. How dare that giant woman walk through this museum? I mean, yeah, of all the powers out there, I think telepathy would be the one I would want the least. I don't, I don't need to know what my coworkers think about I don't want Cyclops' powers. Yeah, I don't look that good in glasses, in sunglasses. Uh, but if anyone disagrees and says you look shitty, one, you wouldn't be able to read their minds to find that out, and two, you could just blast them with your optic beam beams. No, I couldn't lose control, Cody. <laughs> That's the most important thing about being Cyclops. You lose that, they take the powers away. Well, that's perfect. You don't even want the powers. 
That's what happened to him when he was mind control later in the movie. He lost control and fought Gene. That mostly worked out. Gene died. Yeah, well, I mean, for him, it worked out. Uh, He later (laughs) died in a movie later. Well, yeah, but he got a whole movie of not being dead. He was in mourning, so he was dead emotionally. I don't know if those are necessarily tied. We're all deep on that thought now. Like, did, did really Cyclops are. actually love his wife? Who knows? This fascinated me when I was rewatching this. I never noticed that they were eating paninis, and I love the <laughs> idea of Pyro ordering a panini. I never noticed that. Also, I had to look this up and make sure this dude wasn't Matt Bomer. Oh, you thought that too? <laughs> like, he looks like a fucking baby-faced 2000s Matt Bomer. I mean, we live in a world where the internet found out like six months ago that Rami Malek was the gay best friend on The War at Home, so anything's possible. <laughs> I think we got away from important points here. What is the worst mutant power to have? Mike, dig through all of your X-Men comics and find me the worst mutant to be. You could be Slug Tongue. That one's pretty bad. Well, I guess Beak was pretty bad, because Beak was... Oof. I mean, Beak was painful. His bones were... I mean, I guess Warren's bones are hollow, but Beak looked like he was in pain all the time from his his bones being hollow. I'd still rather be Beak than Skin. The mutant whose power is skin. Skin just falling over all over the place. Husk is pretty. No, Husk gets stuff from from her powers. I think Husk was. Right, really I, was, I want to continue this line of thought, but right now I just want to point out this scene was mind bending to me as a thirteen year old. <laughs> and it's such a simple effect. They they really just were like, everyone stop fucking moving. Just just hold still. Higher mimes. <laughs> Like, as a kid, I knew this had to be something special, right? Like, I didn't know if they somehow, like, okay, you walk through the scene, and then we'll take, like, a still image of the actors. I really overthought it. And then years later, I was like, oh, yeah, you can see some of the people wiggle a little bit. It's just a really, really impressive piece of coordination and physical performance. God, this entire museum sequence is such a great use of exposition. Right down to Storm, once again, revealing... (laughs) the tonal details in one of her classes. <laughs> and the, and the lead scenes for that, too, are, uh, are fucking fascinating with the kids watching a, like an anti-mutants presentation that's in the museum. Uh, one of the many times Jubilee will be cut out of a movie. <laughs> poor, poor Jubilee. That actress, same actress, too. Brought back for X3. I just love this X-Men, the animated series conversation they're having. They just sit in in Xavier's office and discuss uh, the politics of the day. While Scott looks intense. If you're making an X-Men movie, you feel like you gotta have those aspects, right? It's it's just an action movie without that. It was fascinating to hear that they were deeply concerned with that while filming, because they thought they were making a movie that was not going to be the shot of adrenaline that people wanted out of the first movie. They thought it was going to be too cerebral. (laughs) Well, 
it, it's got to be cerebral. I, I think that's the deal with X-Men. You need that attachment to them being outsiders persecuted by an unjust society. And Other than that, that like, you just end up with X-Men Origins. Yeah, you end up with a big action movie where no one cares about the stakes or characters. That's the strongest point in these first two X-Men movies. There's there's enough kind of political intrigue going on where you get kind of rooted into these problems and you want these characters to be able to find their way through this without, you know, having to overturn the entire United States and kill the president. Speaking of, I'm fascinated by depictions of a of George Bush like presidents from this specific era of like 2002 to 2003 where people still kind of liked George Bush so it wasn't parody yet <laughs> but they were still going for Bush like yeah on the commentary tracks they mentioned that they weren't specifically going for George W but Singer also says, I think if you're doing a movie and you need a president, you're unconsciously modeling your president off of the, the real-life equivalent. I was like when everybody was faux Clinton in the 90s. Pretty much. Which makes a certain amount of sense. Although it seems like you're more likely to get a George W. knockoff in any movie that needs a president than anyone else. Yeah, th th this is also whether it's conscious or not, vaguely 9-11-esque. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the president's fear to tax them into, you know. Yeah, it's a, that's a shift from the plot of God Loves, Man Kills, which this movie uh, took a lot of inspiration from. I, I remember... Whenever this movie was released, there was a certain amount of blowback from fans who felt that changing Stryker from a televangelist to just a military spook was stripping the story of its politics. And especially rewatching it now, I, I could not disagree with that more. I mean, by the time this movie came out, televangelists had become such an easy target it was almost it would almost be making it too cartoony and too comic be parody books. yeah to just yeah. have them be an evil religious guy meanwhile striker as one of the many many dudes after 9-11 who were whispering in people's ears and saying oh you have to get rid of these people that is i feel infinitely more political for the time it was made and to a certain extent, is kind of a brave choice because, like I said earlier, we were still in that period between 9-11 and the start of the war in Iraq where America as a whole was kind of on board with jingoism again. Yeah. Mostly, yeah. It took a couple of years for people to really back out of it. I think there was some token resistance to it, but by and large, people were kind of like, oh, no, we should go to war. And I, I do like the drawback in Stryker's dialogue where he mentions, you know, Fuck, I was, I was killing people in Vietnam when you were still sucking on your mama's teeth. The idea that he has always been part of these gigantic, gigantic uh, quagmire-type wars and is just perfectly fine pushing another one onto the American public. Yeah, I think that's a, a very key shift, too, like, in context. As God, reading God Loves, Man Kills in 2020... Uh, 
Uh, this isn't a, a criticism of the book at all, because holy shit, God Loves, Man Kills may be the perfect X-Men story. Like, if you were going to show aliens what the X-Men were all about, it would be that story. It's flawless. But as a consequence of the time that it was written in, it, it can come across as very naive in the way it portrays Stryker and his relationship to the outside world. In Claremont's story, Stryker, Stryker is an aberration. He's somebody from outside who's looking to corrupt the infrastructures that would normally protect people. Like it's still shown that most of America doesn't like Stryker. The right and other religious leaders don't really know what to make of Stryker. The president is willing to hear him out, but the general consensus uh, in Washington seems to be that uh, he's a far-right kook. And since that book came out, we've seen from Reagan and Bush, and with the situation uh, going on now, institutions aren't really here to protect us from people like that. Institutions create people like that. And I think the choice to make Stryker 100% part of the establishment is, uh, it rings far truer. Right. So we haven't actually talked about Brian Cox himself, and what a huge get for the movie. The guy brings so much gravity, and not really charisma, but like an anti-charisma kind of to this character, which is fantastic because if you're the main heavy in a superhero movie and you don't have superpowers, that's a hard sell. Most fans are probably just going to roll their eyes and go, oh, this guy's boring. You better have a really cool henchman that can do all the neat stuff he can't. But... It's Brian Cox. He makes the character so interesting. You're along for the ride every time he has a dialogue bit. Uh, unrelated to that, I really love the insert shot of Magneto's fingers sliding along the glass table and slowly losing traction. It's a wonderful little piece of visual storytelling. You know, in just two seconds, you get the idea of what this drug can do and the situation that Magneto finds himself in, where he is panicking, scraping his fingernails just to try and get out of it, and then loses all that tension in just a second. Yeah, I kind of miss when these movies were constructed with such precision. Nice little bit of insert, uh, insert work. Just uh, some good second unit. Also, just a great choice on Cox's part to go with that voice and that accent. Oh, yeah. It says so much, and it could very easily kind of be cartoony, you know, going with, like, the southern thing, but, ooh, it works. And allows him to say, Wolverine! Because <laughs> his greatest contrib... Brian Cox's finest contribution to the arts, as, as far as I'm concerned. And the overall X-Men mythos, let's be honest. <laughs> I like this little visual reminder of Wolverine's powers, just seeing the cigarette... Or the cigar, pardon me. Extinguished on his palm, and this palm healing. Once again, I love the... Their, the way they always play very casually the use of the mutant powers, like... Yeah. Like when, you know, uh, Iceman later uh, freezes Wolverine's beer and shit. It's it's the little <laughs> things where you actually don't see the powers used in big bombastic ways that often, uh, I would say, in the first two movies. It's very just true to life. Uh, they get them in showcase sort of. moments. Yeah. Like, I enjoy the little bit where Wolverine and Iceman meet properly for the first time. They shake hands and 
Iceman flexes a little bit and kind of freezes Wolverine's skin. Finally, someone I can hurt. What a dick. <laughs> That's how oh, I always say hello, by causing uh, frostbite. It's, it's fascinating to uh, rewatch uh, the first two X-Men movies and just make a note of every time they go out of their way to subtly remind you of a plot point or of how a character's powers work or a little bit of backstory, especially in this movie where it's all woven into the dialogue so well. Well, this movie's already, what, 2 hour 15? Something like that? So, yeah, they really can't afford to drag their feet on exposition. They gotta try and move as quickly as they can, because they already are kind of going over what most people, I think, would assume is the best runtime for an action movie. I've always subscribed to uh, Del Toro and, like, Edgar Wright's idea that horror, or action movies should be about two hours or less. Otherwise, they kind of drag. It's something I think comic book, like specifically comic book movies, have lost the last couple of years. Like as great as the MCU is, they do lack that. You know, let's let's put in little bits of you know little tiny bits of the plot instead of big exposition jumps or little reminders of how certain things work. There's a lot of assumption that people will go online to remind themselves about things. Yeah, of how objects in the universe kind of work and i miss stuff like this where it's you don't even it's so deftly handled like you don't yeah. even realize you're being told information most of the time like it's it's so expertly done of setting up each and every part of the world i mean look like, at that cerebro scene and in, in a single sequence we got oh we're, we're introduced to these two characters again here's how xavier's powers work here's how wolverine's powers work here's where we are with this these characters' relationships and Wolverine's story. Also, we just seeded the entire third act for you. you didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The MacGuffin and the plot of the movie are all explained in that couple minutes scene. Uh, okay, so this shot right here, I love of uh, Senator Kelly transforming into Mystique uh, because it's directly ripped off of the Twilight Zone. Senator even yes, admitted I... this. There's a Twilight Zone where the devil escapes and he transforms from a man into Satan as he walks between different pillars, so they could apply the makeup in between cuts. Uh, just, just a really neat little nod. <laughs> it's very random too, which is what I love. Also, I, listening to the commentary, I didn't, I wasn't really online back when the first, uh, for, back when X two came out. I was not you aware there was a, in the Twitter hellscape. I was not like aware there was a fervor about people thinking the production forgot they killed Senator Kelly in the first film. <laughs> oh, I remember that. You idiots, God. <laughs> Well, the big thing, I remember as soon as it was announced that Davidson was coming back, people were like, oh, that's why Magneto said, are you sure you saw what you saw? Because he's going to be a blob, man. <laughs> he's going <laughs> to join the X-Men. You do remember how the last movie ended, right? God, oh. the days before hey, everyone, fucking... look, cameos. Hey, the, the days In before. In text form only. Home video was normal. God, just the I think the grit through the teeth sarcasm in the commentary really makes that. <laughs> just and here's where Senator Kelly turns back into Mystique because he's just Mystique in disguise. It's stunning people didn't get that. Yeah, it's just Franklin yeah. Richards. I, I just want to <laughs> say people shit on the X-Men movies a lot for mishandling the seating of things for sequels project wide awake being on that computer 
actually makes sense with Days of Future Past. It took like 40 years to develop the set. That is a accidental seed. <laughs> Work with what you got. To go back to a point you made earlier, Mike, in like five minutes of this movie, we already have a perfect understanding of how Wolverine's powers work. Like, you just know what he's about and what his powers do. I'm still not really sure what Scarlet Witch can do in the MCU. <laughs> Nobody can. To be like, fair, are you sure of what Scarlet Witch can do in the Marvel comic books? No. Other than make true. no more mutants. That's fair, yeah. But uh, I'm just saying, in the Marvel movies, it seems like powers are a little arbitrary you know you never quite understand what a character is and is not capable of oh vision's powers have never been established ever not quite yeah whereas in these films you get a pretty good grasp on most of the characters very quickly and maybe the most you have to do is a scene like pyro explaining oh i i can't create fire i can only manipulate it yeah something like last commentary we were talking about like what a good job the first movie did about stripping down all of the bullshit that the X-Men continuity had been saddled with by the time that movie was made. Like, they also do it for the powers very well in these first two movies. Like Magneto's powers, you could you could write an encyclopedia about the bullshit Magneto can do. <laughs> now, I love how no, he, he just moves metal around in this and can occasionally fly. Like They stick to everyone having like one or two signature moves and leave it to that. Yeah, no one... That's the thing that caught me really re-watching X2. No one seems super-duper overpowered except for probably Professor X. And that's coupled with the fact that he's in a wheelchair and he still can be bested by other mutants. Yeah. Like in this one, as cool as that action scene with Nightcrawler was, later on we realized, like, oh, he's he's scared to teleport into certain, spot, certain spots because you could end up in a wall and die. Uh, Wolverine, when he has his big action fight, you just assume Wolverine is a guy who can kick any ass, but he even has a hard time in that battle. All the characters are limited in this movie, despite having fantastic powers. There's a, a little bit of a, a throttle on everyone that really amps up the stakes. I, I think so. We, I mean... Not to jump ahead movies, but eventually we'll get to kind of like full throttle X-Men powers and we, you know, get to see essentially comic book Magneto doing stuff and, and Apocalypse and whatnot. And it's makes for great visuals, but ultimately it's kind of weightless. And I think you even run that a little bit with some of the MCU movies. Um, not to, I don't want to compare them too much, but... You and and I mean it doesn't even really need to be said, but I think all three of us are hardcore fans of the MCU. We still oh, love yeah. them, but we still love those movies. Oh, it's my porn. Um, <laughs> but I, I speaking of which, something... Nightcrawler. <laughs> Yay! I think there's something <laughs> comedy Nightcrawler too. But I do think there's something to be said about holding back and just going with like the basics. It grounds it. It makes the powers feel sound silly, more realistic. Mm-hmm. Than just kind of being unfiltered and being able to do anything. Like, they're, it still feels like they're bound to some form of physics. Yeah. So, as long as Nightcrawler's on screen, I'm going to jump points here. It took nine hours to do these scenes because they had to do like a, a full chest and face makeup appliance with all those little raised scars. They had to do the body paint contacts. He's got filed teeth in. 
I can see why Alan Cumming was always very hesitant to come back to the X-Men franchise because none of this looks fun. This this is just hours of torture while all this stuff is applied to you. And then hours later, after the movie's done, you have to have it all scrubbed and ripped off of you. It's And, and apparently he and Singer fight it constantly. So. I, I can't blame him for that. This I, I remember there was a lot of bad blood from Cummings after the movie came out, just with him not really wanting to have to get into all this stuff for an X3 or something. Which is right. such a shame, because his character is amazing. I love the character. It, it's game back for the video game. <laughs> it's very frustrating, because it, there's so much seated in Nightcrawler in this movie for him to become a swashbuckling comic book Nightcrawler in a sequel. But because this is all we get, we kind of just see uh, PTSD sad Nightcrawler. Which works perfectly for the story. Yeah. But, yeah. I feel like he should grow into something more. Yes. And even what we're provided in the movie is so far away from a stock character. It it makes it disappointing when he is not a main player in X3. Like, in this one, we have a mutant who is clearly a mutant. He can't just blend into society. He's an acrobat. He is, uh, like, a hardcore Catholic. Like, he is a character defined by faith. And this gives him a weird vantage point for when he's arguing with Storm later. It's really neat. Like, you get an entirely different philosophical view from Nightcrawler than any other character in this movie. And he's a character who still has faith and love in other people, even though the world essentially hates him and he can't blend into the world. It's like, what a cool character! You can do so much with that! And we don't get him in X3 or a lot of the other X movies until they reintroduce him uh, in in the uh, First Class series. It's a shame. It's really a shame. What I love about this characterization of Nightcrawler is he's a character that's very much motivated by pain and fear, but for the most part, that doesn't have anything to do with him being a mutant. He feels <laughs> really good about being a mutant. Yeah, he's very yeah. mutant positive, actually. He is. Like, he's not like, oh, if only I didn't have three fingers instead of a normal man's <laughs> hand. Like, he's, he's just down with what he is. And I love that line he has about, you know, he feels pity for normal people because they can't see how awesome he really is. Which is like a they're, very they're in a normal, boring-ass world. Hey, Iceman using his powers for convenient things. That's how I use Eating my powers. ice cream, because he's Iceman. <laughs> I love how that's the sequence we get, because they couldn't afford the danger room. <laughs> like, there's two polar opposite things. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're going to have a big CGI fight scene, but instead... Iceman and Logan sharing a soda in the kitchen. <laughs> also, God, Cyclops in full costume, but also wearing a trench coat. I know. Makes me so happy. Predicting Wolverine and the X-Men. <laughs> Comic All books. Right, and now, now we're in one of the most iconic settings from any X-Men movie. The plastic prison they keep Magneto in. Just the circular design. Boy, I love it's It's futuristic without being... An eye store look, which is everything kind of takes its sign cues from Apple in the last few years. So it's very cool to watch something that's almost 20 years old and see how differently it presented the near future from what we really got. It's it's sleek without being overly polished. It's just it's just a one of a kind look in my mind. It's very timelessly sci-fi, like kind of like a lot of moments in 2001. Yeah, I could see that. Looks very uh, Logan's Run. Yes, absolutely. A little bit of that too. 
All right. So any scene where you have Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart together is just going to be good. Like they can't help but make it good, and this scene is is no exception. Uh, those future boyfriends. Ian McKellen's performance in this scene particularly jumps out to me because we get to see him go through this wide range of emotions. When they go back, he's he's kind of angry and he's taunting, but then he also realizes he's got guilt on his own end because he's given away so many secrets. And he kind of turns into fear and more anger. And he just flashes through like five different emotional states in, in 20 seconds before he gets to that big climatic, you should have killed me when you had the chance. That big self-loathing, powerful statement. And what a scene. And just what a, a, an acting clinic from McKellen. Oh, and that one sequence, McKellen gets to be all of Claremont Magneto. He oh, gets yeah. to do every Claremont <laughs> Magneto thing. He sneers at Charles and his optimism. Then he feels the terrible weight of being Magneto. Then he scolds Charles for his optimism again. And he's un- and he's do underlit. Takes. And he's underlit like he's fucking Faust or something. <laughs> and I like that too. He stands up to kind of get this superiority over Charles because he's stuck in the chair. I like they kind of exploited that instead of having them both sitting in chairs facing each other like the uh, the ending of X One. This time we have him peering over in some sort of superior fashion, even though he knows he's fucked up. It's like a, it's a self-projection that really works with the character in a situation. Got terrified Patrick Stewart is frightening. <laughs> that realization like, oh, God, what's happened? It's like seeing your dad scared. Gas. <laughs> we gotta get out of here. E Honda collapses. How do you even get in there? <laughs> Brian Cox is laughing in front of a fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Cyclops. Take your action scene. You're one. I guess a, even in the commentaries, they mention like, "Yeah, we did. We did not give Martin enough to do." Cyclops does not have a big enough role in these movies, and it, it's a complete waste. Which yeah. it, it sucks because everyone realizes it. It wasn't like it was oversight. It was just like, "Oh, well, it's." The team movie, someone has to get the short end of the stick. Yeah, well, and they were in the back of their heads. It's like, well, X three is going to be the big Cyclops movie, so it's kind of okay that we're doing this right now. Before he was revenge written out of a movie, but more on that next commentary. Yeah, before yeah. Superman somehow destroyed everything. <laughs> Oof! All right, now this scene. Oh, the greatest scene say, ever in a comic book movie, honestly, still to this day. Pretty much. By the X2, way. people shit on X2, but it has some of the most iconic superhero moments out there. I would say the opening attack with Nightcrawler, uh, Wolverine's fury in this scene is he just takes these dudes out. No holds barred. There are so many pieces of this movie that still stand out and you still remember. that It just strikes me as insane that people discount this film. People forget that X-Men 2 was beloved. For a very long time. Like, X-Men 2 and Spider-Man 2 wore the gold standard of what superhero movies could be. Like, pretty much... Shadow Cat! Yeah. <laughs> pretty much until halfway into the, the MCU. Yeah. It's, it's only in recent years that people have attempted to alter the conversation. To well, change X2 history on what the now. response was and where this... Where particularly the X-Men films lay in history and kind of also what their quality is. Yeah. 
Well, we've had so many bad X-Men movies over the years, and this one is now so old. I think a lot of people look at it and go, oh. Well, honestly, have we had so many bad X-Men movies over the years? There's been X-3, there's there's been Origins, and then there's been, like, Apocalypse, which is just okay. It isn't even really bad. Apocalypse and Phoenix. Yeah, but way before Phoenix, that already started to happen. That's true. That's very true. Well, it was a very... It was be- weird being alive on the internet for that transition where between first class and a few months after Days of Future Past came out, there was this shift. I know a lot of that has to do with like uh, the lead up to the release of Days of Future Past was when uh, the first round about Alligator Singer came out, and I think that's so lead. It for a lot of people, but that doesn't change the past, though. Yeah, you still enjoyed these movies. That's why uh, everyone going ape shit for Logan was very cathartic. It's like, ha, ah, yes, you care about these characters. God damn it! Uh, speaking this of caring about characters, Colossus. <laughs> uh, uh, when you were a kid, this was the greatest moments. <laughs> Like, okay, so you have theme. In this scene alone, you have Shadow Cat's appearance and her just phasing through everyone. You get Siren, you you get Colossus turning metal and then throwing people through walls. Biggest, oh shit, yes, cheer moment of the movie in my theater. Uh, And then around all that, you have Wolverine just stabbing the hell out of people. (laughs) Holy shit, what a scene. With his action wise, this is is the creme de la creme. If only they had Nightcrawler. I remember that fucking first scream Logan does whenever he stabs that guy was so terrifying. It gave the movie an R rating, so they had to cut to Bobby for a split second. Yes. <laughs> uh, going going back to what we were saying before, I think you pointed this out, JB, um, right after Apocalypse came out, which I think really does sum up the alteration to public opinion of the X-Men movies that are pretty much just, it's not the MCU, so it's stupid, uh, which is all it really comes down to at the end of the day, um, which was with Apocalypse. Oh, it's just another X-Men movie that ends with a giant portal in the sky. That you know, that thing, thing all the X-Men movies have had, I guess? Well, that thing that wasn't a trope until a few years later. I mean, Avengers really was the one to set everyone's mind to the idea of, oh, a move that ends with a giant sky portal is bad. Yeah, it's the MCU that did the giant sky portal thing all the time until, like, Suicide Squad and Justice League. A Suicide Squad put it in the ground, and then Justice League, like, had a priest come out and, like, forsake the ground. <laughs> So we, we've caught a couple of cameos from smaller mutants that won't play as big of a part in this movie. But as a, a younger viewer going in here, that was one of the most exciting things. Just, oh, what cameos can I spot? You know, when they're on the computer, what names do I recognize? Oh, there's Gambit. There's there's Beast. And in this scene, you know, getting to see a couple of random mutants get to use their powers, even if they don't become full-fledged cast members. So cool. As, as a kid, that was like all I wanted. I just wanted them to parade... 20 different mutants in front of me let me see their powers and then roll credits there was apparently so much more of that they wanted to film that they just didn't have the time or budget to well this was after this they started opening conversations of hey what if we did spin-off movies too so all of a sudden they're like oh shit we've got hundreds of mutants how many of those would be popular enough to have their own film 
it's weird to think that like the there are so many X-Men movies and this has been such a uh long-running pop culture fixture but X-Men is still really really untapped as a concept. Yeah. Oh it is. I can't Considering believe how they... gigantic and like an endless canvas this universe is. Yeah, and somehow they they've never managed to pull together a Gambit movie. It took them it took them forever to do Deadpool. Deadpool We've only really happened because they just leaked that movies. FX reel, test reel. There's just so many characters that somehow never got their time to shine in these movies, which is weird because X-Men's always made a profit. So you think they'd be more adventurous and start spinning off these characters, but it just never really happened. The only one they had bravery for was Wolverine because, duh, it's Wolverine. He's going to sell. Oh, ho, ho, Logan. Uh, going back to uh, the interesting changes made in adapting God Loves Man Kills, I think it's a fucking masterstroke to make uh, military spook striker an amalgam of every shady military man slash scientist <laughs> who has ties to Logan's past. <laughs> I want. I just want to point out the lighting and, and kind of the visuals that are in this scene. When Wolverine first sees Stryker, Stryker has the light behind him, and every time we see Wolverine's face, he's just full of glow, because he's essentially looking at his own personal Jesus. That's his God, the man who made him. And that bright light on his face, he's almost staring at his creator in awe. And then we get this moment where he's blocked from his creator, but he still sees his shadow on the wall, and he kind of holds his hand up to that. Which was more kind of a lucky accent. When they put the set together, they realized that light was coming through their ice wall. That so actual actually... ice wall that they made <laughs> and then actually exploded. An That's important point, yeah. In the 2000s. What, a, what an insane thing. Yeah, no, we'll just bring in a block of ice. It'll be fine. But they didn't realize until they set it up that, oh, you can see light through this thing still. We could set up shadows. And they, they kind of put that together last minute just as an impromptu thought. And it's boom, beautiful. Wrath of and Khan it reference. says so much. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm sorry for interrupting. I just wanted to point that out. And what a what a neat visual motif that is when Wolverine and Stryker's relationship is communicated so clearly in just the lighting, even. Hey, you know, something I think about um, with the schools, the school siege scene in particular. It's always amazing to me when a piece of art, particularly I think when it's related to comic book movies, um, which this seems to happen a lot with. I, I find where there's very kind of subtle subtle commentary being pulled from real life. Um, of course, there's, you know, the mutant metaphor and stuff, blah, 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 very obvious. And, but the way it's being painted here using, like, Shade the 9-11 and, and whatnot, it's interesting that now if this movie were released today, you know, it's, it's governments, it's, it's the military raiding a school for people who are different to steal children and then throw them in cages. It is incredible how prescient shit like this becomes. Like it's it's like it's peering into the future and and showing you an image back. It's always unsettling how evergreen most pieces of X Men media are. Yeah, it's and become more so over time, which is very sad. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to me too the way that the hench people are treated in this movie. So hench people might be the wrong term, but in a couple of scenes when the X-Men confront the police officers, they're very careful to show us that none of these cops have been killed. Yeah. 
Whereas when it comes to like the soldiers invading the school, they're fair game, and Wolverine can just murder those guys. And and the filmmakers think that's fair. They don't want to show civilians being hurt. They don't want to show cops being hurt. But the members of the military are fair game, which is something I I think like if you try to put that into a movie now and express that idea, people would chase you into the streets and beat you to death. The the idea right now that uh, people following old orders and being troops is a bad thing. I don't think that'd be well received by audiences. I, I think right now they like the idea that our soldiers are heroes and we should always treat them with respect, even if their leaders are bad. Well, it's incredible to think this is right after 9-11 and the government is the bad guys. Yeah. Although they, they sugarcoat a little bit because the president has a moment where he can go in a better direction and he was led astray by bad actors. So did you think at any point we were going to get Cerebro that was going to be a major player in all these movies? <laughs> that thing that's not that big of a deal in the X-Men mythology. Look at I'm before the X-Men movies. Like, is Cerebro, Cerebro is just... deal in comics? Cerebro is, before the X-Men movies, Cerebro was literally just a helmet on a table off to the side. That detected <laughs> mutants. It didn't, like, it didn't supercharge Xavier's powers or anything. It's just a computer that detects mutants. Yeah. The, the, that's something that's forgotten. So much of modern X-Men kind of concepts actually come from the movies in a lot of ways. Like, the school being a fucking school comes from the movies. Yeah, Morrison sank his teeth into that big time. Yeah. Like, Morrison took so many concepts from the first movie and started to apply it, and even stuff from X2 ended up <laughs> making their way in. Again, I love that visual storytelling. We see the two pills in the bottom of the beer. She slides it over because we have a, an undershot. You know exactly what's going on. It's fantastic. It's so You don't simple. need a giant, long intrigue scene. You can get this done in about a minute and a half. The economy of it is fantastic. Well, I love how there was an entire sequence written where she was going to follow him back to the trailer park where he <laughs> and do that. But they just happened to have a bathroom they built for Cyclops' origin scene that they didn't film in the first movie. <laughs> but they were going to film it between movies and put it on the DVD. <laughs> Because they were that determined to have Cyclops freak out in a bathroom. <laughs> the one thing just... Cyclops does. And then when they decided that was a weird thing to do, they just <laughs> had the set lying around. So it ended up chopping about five minutes off of this movie. So technically what that's happening the... in a high school bathroom. Yeah, one of the weird things too, because they trashed most of the sets after the first X-Men came out. They... Yep. Like, apparently just had the bathroom left over, and what, I, I think Magneto's prison? I believe Magneto's prison is redesigned, isn't it? It, it seems a little more uh, grandiose. I think. I think it may have been altered there. some for filming to be easier. <laughs> that was a fun moment in the commentary. Somebody goes, and all these sets were destroyed after the first movie. I don't know why. <laughs> well you think nowadays everyone's very conscious of oh we're doing a franchise we're aiming for a franchise we should probably save the sets like everyone assumes they're getting the sequel if you watch a lot of big movies now they always end with at least two sequel teases so <laughs> the idea of throwing out sets now to me is insane you just assume those go into storage for three or four years before they even consider throwing them apart oh god look at Fox a year or two later with Daredevil 
Like, no, we have to do five Daredevil movies at once because there will never be a sequel. <laughs> it's actually insane. Daredevil came out this year. Oh, was it this year? Daredevil? Yep, both 2003. This was oh, X2, right. Daredevil, and Hulk. Oh, man. What a, a weird year. What a whiplash of just, what? <laughs> and again, hey, we get the villain's powers repeated a second time, so we clearly understand what his deal is. He's got a mind control serum. But it also people... illustrates something about him, that he's u- using them as tools, slaves, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. The people he hates, he still has to use to serve his own ends, which is interesting. As much as he is disgusted by them, he can't help but survive off of them like a parasite. So I want to mention something. We we talked about uh, during your X-Facts. X-Facts! Um, you mentioned the writers, and one name you left out was Zach Penn. Poor, that is true, yeah. Oh, Zach Penn. Oh, well, poor Wikipedia Zach doesn't Penn. have him listed. Uh, who's not credited on this movie for kind of weird Writers Guild reasons. The Writers Guild just decided he shouldn't be credited for the for the final film in any real way. Um, very puzzling. So the writing process was, I believe it was, it was either just Singer or Singer and Hater came up with a treatment. Uh, pretty much just the spine of the movie, and then Hater and Penn both went off to write separate scripts based on that treatment. So they're writing the same story, and they were still actually collaborating back and forth, but they're both writing kind of like two alternate reality versions of the same thing. Um, and Which we should the- point out isn't actually that unusual. Studios all the time are like, hey, here's a story we want to go with. Let's hand this out to like five different people and see which script works. Yeah, it's it's not like and Spider Man so, Four had that same thing too. Well, they're also developing Amazing Spider Man. Yeah, and and this was a case of the writers. Everybody was still working together. You know, they it wasn't like what Fox would later get into, which I'll explain in a second. But uh, Singer picked Penn's script. Now Penn's script was pretty much this, save for a, a couple couple bits. The biggest, of course, being. Um, there were sentinels in it. Uh, Cerebro was only really needed to um, do the targeting system for the sentinels. And at the end, Gene would have destroyed the um, the sentinel factory um, instead of uh, drowning in the lake. It would sort of destroy the dam and whatnot. Uh, sentinels would have attacked the school and and stuff like that, and there and you can find designs for them. It's it's very well documented. Uh, you can see the concept art and whatnot for the sentinels, which would have transformed like these rolling wheels and then unfurled into into giant robots. It's actually, kind of a cool design. Oh yeah, I've always really liked those. I'm so sad I, they didn't use a version of them for uh, Days of Future Past in any way. But well, wasn't there like a brief moment where they were still gonna have? One sentinel who was going to rip off the door to Cerebro, and then they, Singer and the crew just kind of looked around and said, "That's really anticlimactic. Let's not do that." <laughs> yeah, it was just they just really wanted a sentinel in there, and they just axed it. Uh, so, and somehow, and of course, uh, Doherty and Harris would would come on to to work on the script. For for the final version, so Penn just wrote that one draft, and then it was it was altered, and then budget 
of course, took it down a lot. I mean, that was still the script that would have, like, a big fight between Toad and Nightcrawler. Um, and a bunch of other shit. Cool. Um, and some cool. of Hater's ideas made made its way over, and things changed more and more, and then somehow the Writers Guild would end up striking Penn's name from uh, the the final version, despite the fact his script was the one that was being used. Hmm. Weird. And a lot of unfilmed stuff that they weren't able to do for one reason or another, like Angel being in the movie, um, being held in Weapon X and whatnot, was from Penn's script. They just didn't make it to the screen just for budgetary reasons. Angel being turned into Archangel via Weapon X is honestly kind of a better way to go about that than Apocalypse. It does make more sense for that design. Like, oh, that's why he has metal wings. Fun fact, Jamie. Um, technically, that's also true of the comics. No metal. No. I'm metal. not going to go into Claremont original ideas, though. Um, let's we'll just say... We'll be here all series. Everyone let, let, shut let up. Just, it's one of the I, coolest moments in Magneto's history. Hold on, hold on. I just want to say one joke. Let's just say, if you look at the first time Wolverine met Archangel, he said he smelled something familiar. Something sinister. Something apocalyptic. <laughs> no, but Apocalypse is who the doctor is on the phone during the Barry Windsor Smith's Weapon X. But anyway. Get it? Because it's, it's all coming together. Comic books are stupid. So this scene. Holy shit. What a we could have just ended after moment. this and I would have been happy. Ah, uh, Too much iron in your blood. What I love is everyone on message boards in like 2001 knew this was probably how Magneto was going to break out, but <laughs> nobody ever predicted he would pull fucking liquid metal out of somebody's blood to make ball bearings. This is a surprisingly R-rated kind of detail, right? You it's can see the blood on this goddamn ball. Yeah, so like yeah. his ref his reflection of dying in the ball bearing would not be in a movie today. No, that there's a lot like... of surprisingly kind of adult and bold choices going on in these early X Men films. Oh yeah. Plus, just my imagination, just ugh, just just picturing getting struck by a ball bearing being launched like that. Fuck. God, damn, that would hurt. And this and Magneto's just, signature this, weapon. The sublime moment where Magneto escapes from prison on a metal disc as he shoots ball bearings around to murder his prisoners. Look at that. Like, That's Ian McKellen. Too. Famed actor uh, Ian McKellen. Look at this comic book splash page. Uh, and the wind cried, Magnus. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I don't think you can make Magneto more cool than that scene. <laughs> I love how when it came uh, time for Claremont to write the novelization for X-Men 2, there was an entire backstory to that scene where Magneto was like forced to make ball bearings for the Nazis at Auschwitz. So him creating the ball bearings to once again be freed from uh, bondage was this big symbolic victory. <laughs> And that pissed Michael Doherty off so much. God damn it. That's I love so how Doherty's the one who loves it, too. <laughs> that would have been so cool. Why didn't we talk? 
All right, so back to back, we have Magneto escaping. And then what some people would say is a very on-the-nose scene, but I feel like if you're doing X-Men... You have to. You have to do this scene. And I love way, how it's just, fuck it, we're just, we're going for it. Yeah, the parents the parents have to find out their son is coming out as a mutant. His brother is so upset he calls the cops and destroys the family. Uh, for some reason, the cat is still there as, human, uh, you know, comic relief. I, I, I don't know why. It sells you on the reality of the situation. They I like guess. the cat. But just even some of these super, super dumb tone-deaf lines, like, have you tried not being a mutant? I do wish that was cut. It's like, at that point, it's like, yes, you're doing the gay thing, we know. <laughs> I love that how out. that's in there, though. Like, just I, I would go with I, Mike I think on you this need, one. I think you should, you should go all the way. Like, this scene is not subtle in the first place, so I don't mind the inclusion of that line. They're, they're really beating a dead horse, almost, and how obvious a lot of it is, but... It's obvious, but it's real. Yeah. That's a better way to say it. And, wow, we are really just stringing shit together. Okay, so we had the Magneto escape, then we had the coming out scene, and then we get this scene where they slow the movie down to get a philosophical conversation between Storm and Nightcrawler. Which is Uh, almost a a Nightcrawler commenting on the last scene. (laughs) There, there's a bit where some people were saying, oh, they're doing this to try and set up a future relationship between these two characters, but obviously that doesn't pan out just due to screen time and future films. But now this goes back to the comments I was saying earlier. X1 works because we have a lot of kind of battle of ideas. This character believes X, the other character believes Y, and they have to talk these things out. They can't just punch each other for a victor. And in this situation, even in the team of good guys, we have to have this conversation and have these characters hash out ideas of how they think they should move forward and what the right thing is. They're just not automatically right because they're the good guys. They still have to find their own footing in this world. And they get an outsider perspective from Nightcrawler, which is surprisingly upbeat and positive of the world that reviles him. Whereas Storm, the beautiful woman who really could blend in with society if she wanted to, she doesn't have to make storms and give herself away. She's the one that's angry at humans. And I love that kind of role reversal of what you'd expect. And the fact they actually have these two characters sit down to discuss their differences, and they don't clearly say this person's right and this one's wrong at this time. And the X-Men aren't a one-unit viewpoint. Every member of the team has, has different viewpoints on the, the mutant agenda, as it were. And, and it is a nice way of playing up on stuff that was present in Storm's characterization in the first movie, but not really yeah. given much room to wiggle around. I'm, I'm very curious how much of this was in the original cut of the movie before they reshot more scenes with Storm after Halle Berry won the Oscar. That's a good it's weird. There are there were apparently extensive reshoots, but Storm's also a re- still a relatively small part of this movie, so it makes me wonder, like, was there less of Storm at one point? Like, were they like, were they trying to diminish Halle Berry's role in the sequel after people being very uh, very tepid on her in the first movie, and then just completely go the other way? <laughs> Halle Berry also did demand more to do. Yeah, in the in the commentary they mentioned though for the reshoots, they didn't like thinking of them as reshoots because a lot of it was really just adding a couple of bits onto existing scenes, not tearing apart everything they'd already filmed. 
So a lot of it was just them going back and adding, you know, a couple extra lines of dialogue or maybe a, a small action beat on top of what already existed. Yeah, pretty basic stuff, it sounded like. Yeah, I don't think anything too extremely out of the norm. I mean, most movies have reshoots anyways. Yeah, I think we've mentioned this in commentaries before. Like, the internet needs to just unbuckle its asshole about reshoots. Oh, yeah. Okay, so going back to a point we made earlier about the X-Men not being uber-powered in this film, we just saw Wolverine take a bullet to the head, which we know is covered in an impenetrable metal, and he has to spend several minutes down on the ground for that bullet to pop out of his head and him to regen and get back up, which you could say is a plot contrivance to get the rest of the scene to play out the way it does with Pyro attacking people. But again, I, I like the idea that it shows that even Wolverine, the most badass of the X-Men, like can get taken down by some no-name cop for a couple of minutes if, if you know, the story presents that opportunity. Shouldn't his memory be erased now? Yeah, unfortunately, we have to start over with Wolverine. This is a new man. Well, it, it, I like that because it is a small dose of reality to, like, a character whose powers are very ridiculous. Like, no, he would absolutely have brain trauma from that impact, and it would take a few minutes for everything to be rewired. Yeah. Also, we'd be remiss without commenting on the practical effects bonanza that just happened. Oh, just the guys on wires who just get flipped people. around trees by fireballs and stuff? It's amazing. That sells Pyro's power. Like, it makes it so, like... It, it Because fi CGI fire, especially back then, is fucking difficult. So being able to marry it together with these real effects, but also makes Pyro's power feel actually devastating instead of just CGI oh, yeah. stuff happening everywhere. This yeah. is this movie's version of Magneto dropping the cars. Yeah. For sure. And the we cinematographer almost died. <laughs> yeah, also that. Uh, we also get a cutaway shot of Bobby's brother seeing all of this, like his worst fear play out of just fireballs destroying police officers. Which is kind of an interesting point. I always thought it was very weird that in this scene, the character who steps up to deal with the threat is not really that important to the plot. Like, Pyro just gets this scene to, to decide, I'm going to become one of the members of the bad guy team. But Bobby's fam friends and family are, are right there. It almost seems like it would have been more interesting to make him have to do that. Obviously, you don't want to push Bobby towards being a bad guy, but if this was the time where he had to choose to defend himself and his family seeing that, there, there's a lot of drama you could wring out of that situation. Instead, he kind of becomes a secondary player, and we get this parting shot of his family looking down on him as he runs away. I, I kind of like that, though. I like how Pyro's entire motivation and his reasoning eventually to go with Magneto is, these people are scared children. Somebody has to actually take the reins and do things. I like how you don't really see that from Bobby until the very end. Hey, Bobby's actually very reserved throughout the oh, yeah. entire movie until the end. Which is interesting, because his plot feels like it should be driving the movie. Instead, it's like a glorified subplot. You know, he's got the B story that they don't focus as much on. Well, pretty much everything with Pyro, Rogue, and Bobby is clearly supposed to be a very big deal in the third movie. Which yeah. did not exactly happen. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Uh, there's so much. It's sad to look back at X2 and see so many building blocks that... Tom Rothman would later destroy out of pettiness. 
So from my understanding of the way the story originally played out, in these scenes, Professor X was going to use his powers to overcome Jason and escape the prison. He's going to gather up Cyclops and never going to go back to the mansion. And then it was all going to be revealed as him still being under the control of Jason. So it was a big psych out that ran for like a whole scene. Yeah. Which, in retrospect, really good thing they didn't do. Yeah. Because that seems, one, probably confusing. Two, uh, uh, it would have padded out a movie that's already plenty long. And what? this works just as well. Like, we, we, we know what's happening the moment we see the girl with the two different colored eyes because we've already seen that from Jason. And we don't need to complicate that at all. We don't need to know that Professor X's mind has been clouded because we already know that. We got it in two seconds when he sees a little girl and goes, yep, I better help out in this weird situation I don't understand. <laughs> well, it also, like, the two different versions of that sequence uh, imply completely different things to the audience. In the version in the final cut, you just get the impression that Xavier is in a dream state and working on dream logic. He's not entirely lucid. In the expanded version, it just comes across that Xavier is being tricked. Yeah. yeah. So the I feel like that would make the audience disconnect with that character immediately. Very much so, as, yeah. as it is, you feel sorry for Xavier. You would just be mad at Xavier in that <laughs> version. It makes Xavier look like an idiot, unfortunately. And being outsmarted by a 10-year-old girl. Though it would have well, had more Cyclops, at least, even if it was dream Cyclops. Well, it gets messy at the end, too, when Magneto essentially reprograms Jason to tell him, oh, no, we're going to find and kill the humans now. Like, that doesn't quite jive with the idea of... <laughs> I mean, it's in Xavier's character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, wow. In all these years, I've never noticed Xavier threatens Wolverine at the beginning with being an eight-year-old girl and is then later corrupted by an eight-year-old girl. <laughs> Tables Fucking turn. comeuppance there. No! Also, this sequence is very cool. Uh, one comment about the um, the little girl, though, which amuses me which is michael doherty talking about her and just saying you know i'm a, I like horror a lot so i just found a creepy little girl to be you know fun to write <laughs> like oh little do you know your future your grand oh, grand future it's amazing seeing baby-faced michael doherty talk about his first big break on the sex man movie <laughs> Oh, this entire movie is pretty much made by 12-year-olds. It's weird. 17 years, man. 17 years. Like this, going back to what I said before, they, they went out of their way to show that these pilots survived their encounter. For some reason, there's a clear cutoff. The guys working for Stryker are all damned. But other these are general people... enforcement are okay. Yeah. There's people just enforcing things. They don't really have any... They're doing their jobs. Yeah, the X Men appear very dangerous in this scene. They're in a, they're in a black ops uh, jet. I mean, the first jet fighter did give them the option to uh, to land and end all this properly without missiles. So you know, I, I guess they did a decent job showing that those guys were innocent. Oh, you mean Carol Danvers? <laughs> <laughs> so I believe this this movie was the first uh, feature film to portray female fighter pilots wasn't it yep yeah they talk about that on the commentary they were uh surprised and proud storm is the first um 
a female uh, fighter jet pilot, I think. In well, in I think they're talking about like some of the the other fighter pilots attacking them were were played by women. Uh, no, I remember Storm being specifically uh, pointed out by name. So I think I think it was a particular kind of um, aircraft. Progressive either way. So this has been this is a question I've been uh, batting around in my head uh, since first seeing this movie so many years ago. So you think Magneto and Mystique were just walking through the woods, saw that overhead, and thought, "Oh, thank God that we don't have to walk all the way out." <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking boon this is to our plan. You would have to assume Magneto would have, like, taken out a couple pieces of metal to just transport them along in some sort of, like, metal carriage. A car he's just pushing with his mind through the woods. Look how pimp Magneto looks. Holding his helmet. I love how obsessed this movie is with Magneto holding his helmet. The the X-Men movies are not thought of as, like, loving the more comic booky aspects, but they kind of do if you actually pay close attention. Everybody has, okay. like, insignias, and everybody's fucking in love, like, the movie's in love with people's costuming and shit. Oh, it picks up on the awesome Magneto thing of his helmet being specifically a weapon, and not just uh, a part of his costume. Yeah. He can only put it on when he's doing Magneto business. <laughs> I still love the slight design otherwise. Ruins my hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is Maximum X-Men right here. They're just camping in the woods <laughs> and debating things with Magneto. But is he friend or foe? It's, it's not to get on my bad. X-Men fan fucking soapbox here, but fuck oh, anybody gosh. who says these movies like aren't... Yes, they are super not comic accurate in some regards, but honestly, no more than a lot of other ones. And they get the essence of it so strong that a lot of details I don't think matter as much. It doesn't really matter that they're not wearing spandex or Wolverine doesn't have a mask on or, you know, this doesn't exactly line up or and this this other thing doesn't line up and stuff like that. This is X-Men through and through. Spiritually, it's X-Men. Honestly... Wolverine's too tall. It's not true to the comics. (laughs) I've never quite gotten that complaint because one of my favorite things about this series is the weird backwards version of X-Men continuity we get. Yeah. Like, I like that there's a version of the X-Men universe where Iceman and Rogue are a thing. It's especially... uh, becomes fascinating when we go to first class where we get just ape shit versions of all of those characters. <laughs> I think that stuff's that fun. Makes them better in a certain way. Yeah. Also I love how just every time it cuts to Magneto, it's just bare boobs. <laughs> <laughs> And it's Ian McKellen, too, so it's funny. Oh, Nightcrawler is having fun. <laughs> I like how Kurt is so terrified he's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, she's going to wipe my mind like Zatanna. 
Also, going back to like comic book shit, I love how obsessed the writers in are within this particular movie with Magneto and Logan just having their comic book relationship. <laughs> where Magneto respects the fact that Logan is a loyal soldier, but is annoyed by his very existence. <laughs> it is a very specific relationship, and they they really ground it in perfectly. And Logan's totally got his thing of, yeah, I met guys like you. Not impressed. You <laughs> gonna put on your pajamas again, Nito? So here we here we go into uh what, calling mean, him Nito just seems wrong. <laughs> it sounds insulting. It sounds a little bit like a racial slur, but I don't know how. I, I don't I don't like it. Against regardless. masters of magnetism. I believe it's uh it was Michael Doherty who called this their Star Wars scene. Specifically their Empire Strikes Back scene. <laughs> uh, They're inside a giant space slug right now. I do love how Logan gets this one moment to just be Han Solo. I honestly feel like like this moment is the closest Wolverine gets to being an actual Hollywood leading man. Yeah. Still awkward because he's kissing someone who's like not 100% on board. I am not a fan of the love triangle they set up in these films. I know it was like a major point. They they built a lot off of it, but it just feels weird to me. It's very unexplored. It it kind of has that 90, at least in the first film, it kind of has that 90s movie, movie thing of these characters are in love now. Just, just, just let's just keep going. Trinity and Neo are in love forever. Just, it's not important. Yeah. Well, this scene was also, for the most part, kind of the button on it. It's just Gene uh, essentially going like, wagging his tail. Yeah. It's Gene essentially going, "Yeah, I'm into you," but just kind of physically. Yeah. Well, there. It's in both the first movie and in X Men Two. There is more stuff like more gene focused stuff that does go into her attraction to Wolverine and yeah. does establish very much that it's mutual and that, and that it's tied in with her Phoenix powers rising into her. Yeah. It's just, it's all on the cutting room floor. Like it was fascinating hearing Doherty talk about like, as far as he's concerned, her attraction to Wolverine is almost 100% just a reflection of her powers. Like the Phoenix is her version of the berserker rage like inside them and that's what's that's what the two of them are attracted to in each other it's can someone explain to me why mystique cannot transform away her scars because movie <laughs> this seems like a thing he probably should have figured out pretty fast with his super senses he just shouldn't have to be like oh there's bumps he was here. really horny oh um, uh, yeah and yeah, I imagine the attraction to Wolverine stuff would have played out uh, in a more sensible, he wants to fuck Striker, a more sensible way, especially <laughs> with how it ended up being portrayed in Last Stand. Uh, it was being set up to be played much differently with with the Phoenix manifestation. Yeah. Also, I love how there was a version of that scene where Wolverine was just like, no, like this. 
then they and then you just fucked Mystique as Jean. Yeah, <laughs> Hater wanted so Hater wanted Wolverine to fuck Mystique as Jean. Everyone said no. I think Hater even like said like like I, I don't think it's on the commentary, but in, in some I remember somewhere I could not find it again. Haters like watching that scene and says, "I just want everyone to know." This is as far as I wrote this scene. Everything after this point is someone else. <laughs> a likely story, hater. I think it would have been greater if Wolverine just fucked Mystique because Mystique. I know. Because honestly, though, Magneto would have been... No, I imagine they have a very open relationship. It seemed like even the filmmakers weren't sure what the relationship status was between Mystique and Magneto. I'm honestly cut a little disappointed that... Uh, they turned up the subtext to the point where they're almost certainly fucking in the prequel movies. Because I, I kind of like the idea of this Magneto being gay and Mystique just being his gal pal. I mean, they love what Rogue did with her hair. What? Isn't that a weird line? Because we get that really catty line reading from Magneto, and then he turns and has this very deep conversation with Pyro, like, you're a god among insects. And essentially just takes this guy under his wing in this scene after being a really huge dick seconds prior to someone else from his squad. And I love how that was McKellen's call. Like, the line apparently was just, I love what you've done with your hair. It's supposed to be, like, very sinister, Magneto-like. Mm. And McKellen just wanted to gay it up. <laughs> I will say, case, if though, ever... It's so confusing, because Mystique, like, not Mystique, uh, Rogue wasn't even the one to fuck up his plans. She was just around. If anything, he should be carried to fucking Wolverine or Cyclops. Like... If you have ever talked to an old gay man, they will turn on a dime like that. And also, just it's just so fun to see Magneto and Mystique being catty in the corner. Because <laughs> that's the only person Mystique talks to. She's just sarcastic to everybody else and doesn't speak. She, she had a nice little moment with Nightcrawler. And Magneto then just drops double entendres about, about her all, all the time. Also, yes, the scene with Nightcrawler earlier was not just a, oh, we're just going to reference the fact that, that Mystique is her mother. Like, no, they were going to build on that later. They, this they, this they is, we were going to build on this later, the movie. Pretty much. I'm sorry, if I, if I can go back a second. Mental image. Magneto with a raging heart on, just going, too much iron in my blood. <laughs> oh, and then he lifts it up with his magnetic power. <laughs> oh, Don't da, need Viagra. Yes, he has. Mystique little... turns into Charles. She... <laughs> I was about to say Magneto has like a little tiny version of the helmet that he puts on his junk for like a condom. <laughs> Protects me from thought powers and children. Protects me from the real bad guys. AIDS. It's a commercial. But, Char <laughs> but Charles, man. You, but Charles, how did he know? To, how does he know to resist your asshole? He helped me discover it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, then somehow a speech about where that Juggernaut comes from comes into it, and it's very disturbing and incestuous. When are we going to get a major superhero sponsoring Trojan brand condoms? When are when are they going to have an ad campaign together, like a Captain America sponsored condom? I could see U.S. agents uh, fucking hawking condoms. 
scrap that rascal for America. I'm going to be real sad when that's not a thing that happens. Also, I, I don't know why, but Hugh Jackman playing this vaguely dainty amuses the shit out of me. The way he uses his hands is really interesting. Like, oh, well. Like, the spread fingers just kind of up, you know, it does his little waves and stuff. Visually, they want you to know what's going on here, and I think we all picked up on it the moment it started happening in the theaters. Not that we're super observant, it's just they're making this very obvious. And then Stryker notices uh, immediately. <laughs> Which is nice when the villain and the audience are on the same level. It's always annoying when the audience is like two steps ahead of the bad guy. This is a very cool scene. I think this is what established to me, like, the, the mystique fighting style. You know, her yeah. sliding between those doors while flipping people off. <laughs> her jump as she transforms. We definitely got moments of that in the first movie. But this really? one sells how unique her fighting style is compared to anyone else. It's, it's nothing you Action really see. Brian Cox. Yeah, it's nothing you see in other movies either, which is great. <laughs> mystique is such a... Science... Um, Mystique is such a specific fighter. I'd like to see more of that style picked up in, in other action films. Yeah. And apparently there's even more of it. Like, at one point, she, like, uses a guy as a human shield, and after he's dead, he, like, she kisses him and then throws him at somebody. <laughs> Wasn't that, uh, Rebecca Romaine's idea, too? Yep. It's that and the, uh, finger. Right. <laughs> All right, yeah. So, I, I was talking about earlier about how, how bad I felt for Alan Cumming just to go through his Nightcrawler costume, but whew, that doesn't really compare to what Rebecca Romaine had to do every single day. You know, just the head-to-toe makeup, pretty much being naked for all of it. She was working on other projects at this time, too, so they described in the commentary, she would have to essentially fly into Canada for a day of filming, and most of that would be being put into makeup do a full day of shooting, get all the makeup taken off, jump on a, an airplane and go right back to the States for more filming on a different movie. And it's winter Jesus. in Canada. <laughs> like, and I feel like she's uh, like Tobias in season two of Arrested Development. There's just splotches of blue paint all over her apartment. <laughs> just a handprint on the door. But hey, at least they got it down to it only taking five hours to apply. Yeah. Woo. But I remember uh, Alan Cumming did an interview where he's talking about this movie, and one of the things he was bummed out about was whenever he had to do like the the full makeup deal, he couldn't have lunch with the other actors because they were terrified he was going to like rub his makeup off if he like used a napkin or something. So basically, it was him and Halle Berry having to, like sit at their own trailers while everyone else got to eat together, and him just like eating his lunch through a straw by himself. So I can a, kind of see why he was so hesitant to return to the franchise. Yeah, some some actors just aren't built for, you know, the kind of makeup stuff. There is a funny behind the scenes thing. It just shows you how like how fragile this kind of makeup is. It's it's um the makeup tests for Nightcrawler, which is fucking terrifying. Also, because it's just like a bunch of people dressed like in Nightcrawler makeup, like all standing <laughs> in a circle. It's like oh Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> But it's, um, they're trying to figure out the shade, and uh, Singer's, like, uh, trying to, like, change the shade darker, and completely, like, rips the makeup by just, like, touching it. Uh. It's like, every day filming with, like, one of these, one of these people in, in this full body makeup must have just been terrifying. 
just if they bump into something wrong, you you're setting yourself back hours. And last commentary, we talked about Mystique's ass exploding. All I know is they really should have just cast Derek Mears as Nightcrawler. Just have a big, beefy, tough Nightcrawler. Jesus, that would be incredible. A Nightcrawler that could fuck you up. <laughs> Nightcrawler teleports into the room. Stops teleporting because he can just beat you to death with his hands. Just he all need to jump abs. Wonderbar. <laughs> but he still has the Derek Mears mustache. I laugh about this, but if Hollywood wanted to steal that idea, it's yours. Go ahead. Derek Mears is give every a, character. He's Deathstroke. Just give us a, a big fucking beefy Nightcrawler Derek Mears. Any character that's just kicked in makeup, fuck it, go ahead and make it Derek Mears. Give that poor man steady work. Make him the next Pearlman. Oh, we haven't pointed out the fact that the actor playing Jason is the fucking corpse from Seven. Is Sloth. <laughs> the other uh, Doug Jones. And I physical performance too they noted in the commentary you don't think about it but he is sitting in a wheelchair with like pads on him to make him slouch forward and he has to play it almost completely emotionless and still which is more challenging than you'd assume like i wouldn't be able to do that i'd be very uncomfortable i just want to fidget in that chair i would have a hard time pulling off these looks day in day out like it just i don't know i'd be cracking smiles i would i would get thrown out of the chair in like two days i feel like muscles are gonna start tensing up it'll just Try not to twitch. Yeah, it's amazing how much character girl... he can get through without actually having to say a single word. Uh, this little girl grew up to be Jude Law. Wow. <laughs> Recognize the chin. Fun little fact there. That's an X fact for the fans. I did not realize until years afterwards. This is totally supposed to be Mastermind. Just such an interesting take on that character. Like, let's literally rip away everything about him, make him lobotomized, and just adapt the powers, which actually kind of works perfectly for Mastermind. There's something very terrifying about a character who can create uh, intricate, very psychological illusions, but is just an empty husk himself. Which is kind of subtext with Jason Wingard usually, but I love how it's just literal in this version. <laughs> and it, just, also, it in makes that last um, shot, we got a uh, again because Cerebro is just a character. We get foil Cerebro, like the hollowed out, crappy looking, chunky version of Cerebro. Dark Cerebro. Dark Cerebro. The sinister panels. The Guiji of the uh, Cerebro universe. <laughs> oh, you were saying, Mike? Oh, I was, uh, was going to say, it also ups the ante on kind of how powerful Stryker is, that he has that kind of power at his disposal as just you know, a slave. I got more <laughs> cattiness from Magneto. <laughs> so long, Cyclops! <laughs> Another great Magneto thing. Just being casually amused by the fact that Gene and Scott are a happy couple. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at the lovebirds over there. Hmm. Okay, here's a question. <laughs> Nightcrawler, why did you have to bamf in the most terrifying way possible? Boo, I'm in the shadows. Boogity. 
God, the the uh, alternate version of that take is even worse, where it's like just he's in darkness and you just see the eyes. <laughs> yeah, but that's a very comic book panel look for uh, Nightcrawler. Oh yeah, Kitty Pride just runs out screaming. <laughs> you could leave at any time. I was like, I love how at the end of the day, Stryker's undoing is the very questionable decision to put his secret lab in a dam. (laughs) (laughs) God, did that bite him in the ass immediately. You have to be careful where you put your fucking secret villain hideout. People should have learned that from James Bond. Dr. No taught it right away. His middle hands couldn't climb his own ladders. Yeah, don't put your evil lair inside an active volcano. Don't put it anywhere that could easily flood. There, there's just a lot of bad spots to put your evil lair, and you'd think bad guys would have this on lock by now. Oh, are, are we getting to the most wonderful Brian Cox scene in history? <laughs> I'm just looking at dials and meters like he's at the bottom of a submarine. No! Everything Brian Cox says in this movie is sublime. I think they say in the commentary, like, they intentionally singled that out as their Captain Nemo scene. Like, that's the vibe they wanted to go for. (laughs) Oh, poor Hawkeye Cyclops. I love how everybody picked extra colors for their costumes, but Cyclops was like, no, I just want the one. Very Cyclops move. I will say, like, the costumes in the first movie, like, are objectively not very good. Like, does not from a design standpoint so much as just, yes, my submarine! <laughs> uh, not really from a design standpoint, but just from materials and just kind of how they look on screen. Like we said, like, nobody on set was happy with how that turned out. I actually really like the X2 costumes. They've oh, I adore these up. outfits. Yeah. They're just stylized enough. They've got a good, uh, they've got, like, little touches of their comic book looks kind of hidden in there, especially with Wolverine. Oh, yeah, also, I love Wolverine's outfit. Also, Storm is at this point is just wearing her comic book costume. Pretty it much, have, it just doesn't have skin showing. That's the yeah. That's something that people I think overlook is like, no, that is kind of just Storm's outfit. Um, I also really love this kind of the seventies uh, pants on Wolverine. Like, I really like some of the retro stuff they they throw in here because the comic originated in the sixties and and the seventies. So they do add a little bit of, of retro to some of the set design, some of the costuming, but blend it very seamlessly. I think it creates a really unique look. Honestly, I think if they just made the leather a very dark blue, it would have been perfect. Like you, yeah. Like there, that's just the X-Men team costumes. Oh, definitely. Even uh, this... The Weapon X room here is just something from a weird, mad scientist comic book story, circa, like, 1965. Mike, how... How mind-blowing was it as a child to see Wolverine, the real Wolverine in a movie, walk through the the Weapon X room? 
and oh, see, see his claw marks on the on the walls. <laughs> There's something specifically about the fact that he he still is in a tank. Yes, wait, it should be a tank. God. Just screaming, covered in blood. His hands, never more itchy. So itchy. Later this scene would be adapted where he just leaves. <laughs> and still has his memory. It's very confusing. <laughs> so long, chumps. Just think, up until that movie was stricken from continuity, it was just canon that this version of Wolverine's first memory was seeing a dead Lynn Collins on Three Mile Island and then just walking into the wilderness. And not trusting Gambit. <laughs> Again, I think we should actually talk about that a little bit because this movie's uh, handling of Wolverine's origin rendered this moot as soon as it was released, but the threat of this movie revealing Wolverine's origin before the comics changed comic continuity forever. Yep. The um, post post the first X-Men movie, rumors, pretty much mostly unfounded rumors, honestly. It really had nothing to do with any, any development of this actual movie, but it was rumored that a sequel to X-Men would reveal where Wolver like Wolverine's full origin. Um, at this point, Marvel was coming out of bankruptcy, um, thanks to this, and there was, uh, constant meetings in, of all places, I swear to God, Joe Quesada's basement. <laughs> That's where all the Marvel people would get together and have meetings and, like, the writers and stuff and would have pitch meetings. And it was fucking terrifying to everybody, the concept of Wolverine's origin being revealed outside of the comics. Um, so it was pitched like, do a, we need a big thing to like catapult Marvel back into the stratosphere. Um, cause we're nothing right now. Uh, we almost stopped existing about a year and a half ago. So we need something big and we need to beat this to the punch. So why don't we do a Wolverine origin comic? Um, after several hours of everyone arguing that should never be a thing and they would all quit if that ever happened. <laughs> Um, it was eventually decided it would be okay and to go for it, and that ended up being the graphic novel origin. Which has kind of fallen by the wayside. Like, fan, I think to this day, fans still seem, still seem pretty divided on it. Um, Mike and I are huge fans of that Paul Jenkins and Andy Kubert book. Like, it's like, go seek it out. You can find the trade easily. It's not at all what you would expect a Wolverine origin comic to be, and that's what makes it absolutely excellent. I think it's one of the best graphic novels in the X-Men library. Oh, by by large. It's it's definitely one of the best. Mar it, Marvel does not have a lot of like prestige graphic novels, I find. That's up there. Like That's their fucking, you know, year one, Dark Knight Returns, blah, blah, blah. It's like a Dickens story, too. Like, it's so oh, something yeah. you would not expect. And that's what's great is the story of how that book came about. To later see stuff from origin adapted into the movies. Like it's it's kind of a... In some cases, hilariously. <laughs> yeah, very hilariously. Son. Um, we'll get there. <laughs> um, We're but... brothers, James. 
Brother. But it's, <laughs> but it's this cool You're circular Logan thing. Now. Like, even just his name still being James Howlett in Logan. Yeah. Also, God, this death is fucking brutal. <laughs> Once again, this is a PG-13 movie. A bit surprising, I, too, because this happens. The, the essentially main henchman has been taken out of the film with 37 minutes to go. A bit of a surprise. Like, you kind of assume, like, oh, is she going to come back just made of lead in a later part of this film? Yeah, there's no more fights. Oh, it's a, it, it actually has a very similar structure in that regard to God Loves, Man Kills, where the purifiers are taken out before the final confrontation, and then the ending is just a philosophical argument between the X-Men and Stryker. Yeah, on stage. Before <laughs> the whole the novelization world. of this movie... Like, these characters were all given so much more time before they were killed by their own grenades going off. <laughs> oh, Claremont. Uh, oh, speak, going to, back to, to Deathstrike. Go back to, oh. uh, going no, back to, that's where on. I was going to go. Uh, going back to Deathstrike for a uh, moment. Um, uh, Hater revealed that Deathstrike... I don't know if Deathstrike was in Penn's version, but I don't think so. Um, it was originally... Um, his his underling from God Loves Man Kills. Um but she would have been revealed uh during kind of this scene, revealed to be a mutant and, and Stryker would have then taken her out in disgust. Like she would secretly have been a mutant the entire time. Um apparently Singer decided that well if you're making her a mutant, let's throw her we, we don't have a lot of other mutants to be bad guys or for people to fight. Or to be like any kind of physical threat, so throw in like, like let's throw in a cool mutant there to be like Striker's underling. Like we have the mind control thing, so let's just do that. And that's how she grew into Deathstrike. Which this Deathstrike, of course, has no bearing on comic book Deathstrike at all, other than her. She still, other than her name, still Yukio and and shit like that. But I do find it interesting that it's mentioned briefly in the commentary. I forget who says it. But it's the it's the moment she's killed by Wolverine. Did you know he's kind of horrified, and you see her eyes change as kind of the mind control thing goes away. It was their idea that even though this version doesn't have any ties to Wolverine, that this version of Deathstrike was just a normal person, like maybe just like a housewife or a mother or something like that. That Striker just found out she had these powers and kidnapped her and turned her into like a living weapon, like Wolverine. And just there's a there's a added sadness to what Stryker's done to her as far as her being a mutant is concerned, that she's not like she's not like comic book Death Strike where she has this vendetta and and all this. She's just uh she's just a thing to Stryker. And as long as we're talking about Death Strike, what I find interesting here is we've had a lot of Wolverine parallels and foils for villains throughout the X series. It's not like every time X-Men go against a villain, they have to fight their own Wolverine. But in the first movie, there's Sabretooth, who is essentially, you know, a bigger, dumber Wolverine. Uh, X2, we get the silent Lady Deathstrike, who is kind of a dark path for Wolverine. You know, if he'd stayed part of the program, if he hadn't escaped the Weapon X thing, he could have been her. Later on in uh, X-Men Origins, we get uh, Sabretooth again, with more personality and tighter ties to Wolverine. We eventually get Logan, where Logan fights a, an actual clone of himself. Throughout a lot of these films, if Wolverine is your main character, it's 
not a stretch to assume that the villain is going to be some sort of shadow image of Wolverine. Which goes along with it, because in most movies, Wolverine is trying to figure out something about his identity. So it makes sense he should have to fight a form of himself to get to that bit of insight he's looking for. That's why I've always given uh, these movies a pass in that. Like, it's such a superhero cliche in both comics and especially in movies of, oh, the, the hero has to fight his opposite number every single time. We have to see two people with the same powers <laughs> mime at each other. If but, it's an origin, that's how it is. But in uh, but with the case of Wolverine, like that does kind of cut to the core of Wolverine. At the end of the day, his arch enemy is the darkest part of himself, and all of his greatest foes, like Sabretooth and Deathstrike, represent things like that. Like, and it's such a strong illustration of how violent that internal battle inside of him is when it's externalized in an actual battle i think i think it's just different when it's played with wolverine so uh, going back to deathstrike uh what you were saying for a moment i do like how these movies are two for two with wolverine enemies that aren't allowed to speak because if they did it would complicate the movie ten thousand <laughs> <laughs> Like it's like having cable show up and not talk. <laughs> like this is just gonna save us like thirty pages of script. Also, and returning to this movie's handling of Wolverine's origin, I remember there was so much anxiety about this from the fans because I know what the uh, big kicker that was like driving uh that like drove a lot of the buzz was there was a script and mike and i like looked into this we still can't confirm or deny if this was actually david haters one of david haters original drafts or just some fan fiction that got put on the front page of ign because that happened a lot back then but there was a script floating around where you would see wolverine in high school like in the 60s <laughs> Which would have been so bizarre. That and also Xavier and also Juggernaut would break Magneto out of prison, which I'm convinced that rumor is where uh where they got the idea for Juggernaut breaking out uh Magneto in the original version of Days of Future. Because <laughs> they are not above reusing ideas they've had in their head forever. But I, it was such a tremendous relief watching this. And seeing this movie's opinion of Wolverine's origin being, it doesn't matter. Because it does tell you everything you really need to know about Wolverine. He was a shitty black ops dude who killed people for Stryker. He volunteered to have his memory erased and be made into the ultimate weapon. But something went wrong and now he's better off as, as being Wolverine, being part of the X-Men. That's really all you need to say. Yeah, I love the scene we'll get later where he confronts Stryker for the last time. Stryker says, hey, if you leave me here, you'll never learn your past. And he's carrying, you know, an injured mutant. And he goes, eh, whatever, and walks off. It's, it's more important. He has essentially his own proper new self, his future, in his hands if he moves forward. And if he goes back, he's just facing a past that he doesn't want to see. Yeah. And it makes so much sense. It's like, hey, perfect. We don't need to know all the details. That's the whole point. He is choosing to say they don't matter. 
I really like that as a strong character choice and development piece. Sneaky striker. So hear that in 30 years of comic books? <laughs> Impossible. <laughs> oh, so we have avoided talking about this the whole commentary. I am in love with that weird spooky smoke effect they use for Cerebro in the first movie. I think that's really underrated, but holy shit, does Cerebro look cool in this movie? Yeah. <laughs> that is such a cool idea, and it communicates what they're going for. Like, this very, like, kind of hard to wrap your head around idea of Charles being linked to every human mind on Earth. Like, it expresses that so succinctly that there's they don't need more than a line or two of expo exposition. Like you understand exactly what's going on. No, we, and we didn't, uh, we didn't mention it, but uh, when Xavier was targeting the mutants, there was supposed to be a bunch of cameos of, of characters, powers going crazy. And, and a lot of name cameos too. There was supposed to be, we were going to see the actor playing Kank on the TV earlier, um, start to get affected. And that's when he transformed into blue beast. Uh, when his powers were going crazy, there would have been marrow like walking down the streets of New York City, and her, you know, her bones would have started growing like out of control, out of her body and whatnot. Uh, we would have seen Gambit from behind. He would have been playing with cards, and his powers would have started going crazy. There like been all kinds of stuff. Even yeah. Storm's powers would have started going crazy, and it just kind of got pared down to just Mystique, and they couldn't afford all the other cameos. It would have been kind of nice if we saw the impact of Cerebro's attack on society outside of this scene you know if we saw yeah. people in actual cities like freaking out and panicking not necessarily needed but i, I think it would have helped drive the danger of what's happening right now like no, the, the entire world is the only one who matters <laughs> uh, i think we also missed this so when magneto flies out earlier apparently that was something they weren't going to do because they thought it cost too much money but ian mckellen on the day demanded to fly i want to fly <laughs> I, I love how fly. McKellen's like, Magneto flies, and I want to fly. <laughs> You're not going to tell Ian McKellen, no, make him fly. Also, we had this great moment, too, of uh, Nightcrawler and Storm going back to their conversation of faith, where, you know, he's reminded, hey, you have to have your faith to get into this room. Yes, you might teleport into a wall or off a cliff or something, but if you don't, we're never going to be able to save the world, so you have to believe in yourself. Actual follow-through for a philosophical conversation from earlier. That's good screenwriting. Hey. Look at, look at that fucking early 2000s alternative rock music video by Rother. Yeah. <laughs> you ever feel like breaking down? You ever feel out of place? You ever feel really bad for Nightcrawler during this scene? It's very I feel cold. bad for Nightcrawler this entire movie. No one respects him or wants to hear about his time in the circus. God damn it, Nightcrawler's just the best. The incredible Nightcrawler. Alright, so everyone knows my favorite mutant. Uh, what, what's your picks for best mutants? Ooh. Are we talking specifically in this film? Uh, in comics or movie, whatever you go with, whatever you like more. Uh, Beast was always my favorite. Got a Beast lady a over gentleman. here? I know. 
Mike's going to list 40 it's goddamn difficult. characters. It's difficult for show. me. <laughs> it's really fucking difficult for me. Um, I'm waiting for you to pick the worst one somehow. Like, oh, oh, man. It's all about Jubilee for me. Fucking Spiral. Um, <laughs> a spiral is not technically a mutant. She's... Anyway, um... Ooh. Probably... Uh, honestly, Kitty Pride. Shadowcat? Nice. Yeah. I respect it. We'll always love Shadowcat. She's the only one who's uh, brave enough to tell the truth about Charles Xavier. Girl. <laughs> yeah, besides Nightcrawler, I really enjoyed Colossus uh, in, in, like, the animated series. I love Colossus as a kid. Every uh, version of Colossus is wonderful. How do you feel about Colossus in the Deadpool films, though? Because a lot of people are not enthused about the fact... <laughs> I love that they just leave Jason behind and fucking die here. <laughs> Fuck that old no, man. He's demon. <laughs> uh, <but a> <laughs> no, he's he is demon. <laughs> Jesus, Nightcrawler. I do love how there was apparently shot of a giant thing, like, crushing him. They're like, it's just too sad. Let's take it out. Yeah, that's a little much. We made a very sad, pathetic character with a super dark backstory. I don't think we need to show him being crushed by debris. You can imagine that. Uh, I have anyway, back feeling... to Colossus in Deadpool. Oh. So many people were bummed out because he was made more of a, a larger-than-life comedy character instead of the Colossus we know and love. But goddammit, do I really love his fight scene with Juggernaut in, in Deadpool, well, too. it's fucking spectacular. Um, I like Colossus in the Deadpool movies. To me, I just try to frame it as... Well, it's like if a character appears in, like, a Deadpool comic or a different comic, they're always going to be slightly yeah. different. It's just, it's Colossus super heightened. He is one of my favorite parts of those films. Oh, yeah. It's like, would I want this Colossus, like, straight on how he is in the Deadpool movies to be exactly the same in an X-Men movie? No, but for a Deadpool movie, he's great. <laughs> they at least understood that the Colossus is the best of us. That's his person. Damn right. I still ship him and Kitty. Or if she did leave him. Damn you, comics! I I, I have a feeling Phantom X is is circling around him. That's why I always like to imagine. (laughs) Uh, I think we're about to go up to an amazing shot I never noticed until re-watching this the other day. Where... Uh, Patrick Stewart looks on in disgust at being touched by Halle Berry and then opens his mouth oh, and embraces Alan Cumming. <laughs> it's like a joke take that they kept in by mistake. <laughs> I, just, I want you to look for it. I have never paid attention to this, so now I can't even think about anything else. Just... I had to rewind it like five times to make sure I wasn't seeing things. It's hilarious. So, hey, Rogue did a thing. Rogue, as a kid, I was like, Rogue's flying the X-Jet. She's doing the Rogue thing. Also, I just want to say, Blackbird. I really don't like how the movies turned it into the X-Jets, and it's just... (laughs) Wow, he was like... (laughs) That that was a real, like, "Mm, good soldier look he gave her, and then went about his business with with his savior, Daddy Elf. Just foreign hugs, Nightcrawler. Just hope, nope, bring it in. That was Jubilee. Get these guests out of here. That was the, that was the soul of Xavier. Take me away, circus boy, to the plane. Man, next time I go back to my parents' place, I'm gonna have to dig my Nightcrawler action figure out of the the old. You still uh, have it? 
I, I had the X2 Nightcrawler action figure out on a, a desk for years. I don't know where uh, it is now. I, that. I still have my X-Men 1 Magneto. Ooh. He's I think gigantic. I have Toad as well somewhere still. I don't know if that got sold or not. I love how Magneto, Magneto revenged Striker for the scene. <laughs> <laughs> he did the Magneto is angry at you thing. <laughs> Also, Leech is here the entire time. <laughs> I love how prominent Leech is here, and then he's just a different character in X-Men 3. It's, it's part of that strong X-Men continuity. Everyone just morphs between movies or disappears or becomes a totally different small. person. Yeah. I have to say, I actually like the X-Men movies... Uh general resistance to fan service i think that's ultimately for the best but come on you had the perfect opportunity for brian cox to say you dare call that thing human (laughs) (laughs) that is bullshit i never thought about that and i'm mad now like that's the striker has one job He's he is one thing. He says one hateful line and then dies. His... He points at Adam Warrock with disgust. <laughs> Thanks, I, exposition I gene. I'm obsessed with Logan calling him Pyro. I know. Once again, it's like that's when they just said, "Fuck it." Everyone's calling each other by their code names, which implies that Logan overheard that conversation. And, and is and still a, choosing to respect his decision. That That is how good of a guy Logan is. And he just likes the sound of the name. Like, that's cool. I'm Wolverine, you're Pyro. That's pretty cool. Makes sense. He never learned on, the wheels. kid's actual name. That's why he calls him Pyro. It's like when a person uses nicknames for everybody, you know they're doing that because they don't remember real names. Oh, so this is a cool-ass effect. This is a very large miniature that they put a lot of fucking work in to making sure something you don't think about, the water has to appear as scale. Yeah. So they have That's to shoot the out with, miniature, water with a just certain doesn't scale very well. Yeah, they have to shoot out, shoot out with a very specific intensity. They have to foam it up in a very specific way to make it look scale. And seeing the behind-the-scenes stuff of them doing this, where they would shoot into a tank where they could then refill it and shoot it back out if they needed to and even rebuild it overnight... And redo the entire thing was really cool. It's an effect you don't think of, but yeah, they built a fairly large scale uh, dam and then had it automated so they could just blast water through it. Uh, I miss the age of bigotures. That needs to come back. Go, Cyclops, go. Boss, Nowadays, it's, we don't even need to film on a set. Actors don't even need to be wearing costumes. <laughs> we can just have Robert Downey Jr. Skype his performance in and we'll fix it in post. Oh, just die already. <laughs> <laughs> We're tired of you, Striker. No! Look at that Plus, fucking trailer shot. Oh, yeah. It's still kind of stunning to me that Gene's death was not a concrete fixed point in this movie until pretty late in the process. Yeah, didn't they film the White House scene two ways? Yeah. 
Uh, no, like they, they did. They, just... they did publicity stills to throw people off. Oh, okay. And they but did they a joke, joke thing, but part way, like filming had actually started, hadn't it? Before they decided that oh, we're definitely going to kill Gene. Singer said Jeff. he decided when they were filming the museum scene. Yeah, they decided concrete. Other because they still had a backup plan that after they all thought they would, uh, she was dead. You would you would hear Nightcrawler bamf, and he'd be holding her um, like. Uh, soaking wet body, and they would resuscitate her. That'd have been kind of Just a weird ending. Yeah, I think if Jansen said she didn't know until like halfway through production. Yeah. Well, yeah, they said they made up their minds, and then they waited like another month before they told her what they were going to do. And it's even funnier when you consider like really early versions of this. Penn revealed this when he was uh, promoting Ready Player One that. The original conversations for X2 were about just doing a flat-out Phoenix story, and Penn had talked Singer into building to it instead, which is also um, tragic now when you look back on it, like, oh, you won't have all the time in the world to build to that. <laughs> I, I love that with Ready Player One, Zach Penn saw a script. To completion. Finally. Goddamn time. Only in the industry since the early 90s. Also, Scott and Logan holding each other is the most beautiful thing in the world. Oh, yeah. <laughs> F fuck action movie masculinity. The X Men movies do not play in that. Even with Wolverine. Oh. What's so fucking great about them? That was what was so like ended up being so perfect about the casting of Jackman because virtually any other actor, like if they went with a tough guy actor, we would not have gotten stuff like that. Like oh, the fact yeah. that they went to a musical theater dude and had him play tough, like that's uh, that that is the smartest, or not really, really smartest, the best bit of accidental luck in this entire <laughs> franchise. Well, just think, okay, so we're getting the X-Men movies right now, where you get Hugh Jackman, who is a super-duper tough guy, but also can have those sensitive moments. And right around the same period, 2003, is when we got The Return of the King. And I would say Aragorn is very much in the same mold as that. Way more sensitive, probably, than Wolverine. Oh, yeah. But what a banner time for, like, super masculine dudes that are not overly so like you, they definitely have moments of tenderness and they're not afraid to show that oh last minute recast tough guys at that yeah. <laughs> very true ian mckellen is just the glue that holds those productions together hey going back to um the dam breaking you know based on a lot of, of imagery i think it makes its way in here especially especially with this movie with nightcrawler and whatnot do you think they were at all consciously playing on flood imagery especially with striker I can like only, biblical floods? I mean, yeah. We do have parting the sea uh, very noticeably there. It wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. It feels like Magneto needs to be using the floods to wipe people out for that to work. Maybe. Maybe and but... Singer does love that kind of biblical-inspired imagery. I mean, just like a Superman Returns. Yeah, Singer puts a lot of biblical imagery into stuff. I mean, G Superman just does a goddamn Jesus pose at one point, so... Yeah. So look at Nightcrawler chilling in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I hate, I absolutely hate the idea of Nightcrawler hiding in the background going, <laughs> Mind dick. Just, uh. 
just, okay. just doing like the evil caretaker voice from goddamn Scooby-Doo meets the Boo Brothers. I don't, I don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> I was like, could you imagine if they, instead of this, they just did the ending of God Loves Man Kills, where they, they're just chilling at the mansion going, yeah, Magneto's probably right. Let's kill everybody. <laughs> Well, again, it's a strong statement. We've seen what Professor X can do. If he wanted to, he could smooth this whole situation out by using his mind control powers to just have the president say whatever he wanted. And instead, they do this soft confrontation where he shows them that they're not a threat. He shows the guy who attacked the president earlier, just chilling in the background, like, hey, sorry about that. And he, he leaves this to the president to decide how he wants to handle this moving forward. He doesn't insist and he doesn't use his powers to force. Which, I mean, that's Xavier in these movies in a nutshell. Yeah, and, and there, I think there's an interesting theme of free will to incite change. Because everything with Stryker is, is either mind control or, or forcement or versions of illusions to kind of remove the concept of free will from somebody. Mm -hmm. The force of it, force change, and Xavier could just easily force change, but chooses not to. It, it also feels very much like this is the end of, like, an X-Men or, like, a prolonged X-Men origin. Oh, yeah. I do really enjoy that the first X-Men movie ended on one of the most American pieces of iconography out there, the Statue of Liberty, and this one bumps that into another level by saying, okay, the the final confrontation, if you'll, if you'll phrase it that way, is going to be in the goddamn Oval Office. <laughs> Like, as political statements, I don't know how you can get more direct than that. Like, our final battles are going to take place in, in notable hallmarks of freedom. And specifically, the outsiders are an integral part of America. Yeah. Once again, a movie that needs to come out and be rewatched now. Um, it's also a really cool, kind of flipped-on-its-head version of the finale from God Loves Man Kills. You know, it's a it's a news briefing. It's a press conference. Part of me wishes that was the last shot of the movie, though. Just the president looking down as he's deciding how to change his speech. Oh, they go Watchmen with it? <laughs> like, also, I, I enjoy uh, the idea of just him kind of hesitating. Then you have the leeway of what you want to do with X3. Instead, you come back to the mansion and you have this little bit of a send-off here with Professor X getting in the last words. We have uh, Wolverine and Cyclops coming to emotional terms over Jean Grey's death. 70s as fuck, Logan, here. Oh, yeah, oh, that, that chest hair. Just being a John Byrne drawing all of a sudden. <laughs> Back with his Barry Windsor Smith hair. And uh, Cyclops' so, yeah. morning sweater. <laughs> I think this is a good emotional coda, but in my mind, I probably would have chopped things right to that final confrontation in the Oval Office and, you know, maybe leave this as deleted scenes or a start to the next movie or something. I, I could I could maybe see you getting away with throwing this in after the death and establishing that taunt there was a, a gap between Gene's death and that scene, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with uh, the note this ends on. Yeah. It's all it's very, very much cathartic. an X-Men log. It's a full meal is what it is. <laughs> a full hearty meal. I think it is like a book. This would be perfectly fine and acceptable. But as a movie, it doesn't flow as well for me. It just makes the ending seem like it's been going too long. I mean, what's 
really uh, missing from this scene is, uh, I know they shot this, but I understand why it didn't uh, end up in the movie, is uh, after that conversation between Logan and Scott, uh, he steals his bike again, and you just see a shot of him smiling as he peels out of the Xavier Institute credits. God damn it, Cyclops, lock your bikes up. They Jamie, just I shot from the first movie. Jamie, I like your joke. I thought you were going to go with, uh, and then Professor Xavier explains how to make a drink for 15 minutes straight. <laughs> but it is a great drink. All filled with brewed embryos. So I do love how Xavier is essentially saying, it's going to be all right. Gene is going to rip me to shreds in the middle of the child. <laughs> I finally get to die. <laughs> and I get a slightly younger body. <laughs> oh, X3. I'm kind of excited to watch X3. I have not seen it in years. It's been a long think... time for me. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'll like it more this this time. It's a, it's an interesting beast. Ah, I see what you did there, beast. <laughs> oh. Oh. Hey, so, look, Zach so... did get a story credit though. Yeah, good for him. That no one no one actually takes seriously for some reason. I, I'm, I'm trying to think. X three has the post credit scene. Uh, I don't remember how many other X Men movies do. I think most of them do. W was this like the last X Men to not have a post credit scene? I believe so, actually. Yeah, Weird. X three does. What's first class after credit scene? Uh, I don't first know if first class does or not. First class does not. Yeah, first class doesn't. I don't remember I Days of Future Past. Uh, Origins has one. Um, Our Origins, actually, I think there were a couple. Five. Yeah. Uh, uh, Logan, actually, does Logan have one? I don't think he no. does. No. Which, well, that one makes sense because it's the ending. Uh, but the Wolverine definitely has one. X3 has one. Uh, oh, uh, wait. Uh, Days of Future Past. Apocalypse, yes. Oh, yeah, Days of Future Past has Apocalypse. Apocalypse has the Mr. Sinister one. Yep. I don't I don't think Phoenix has one. I don't think so either. Well, that um, makes sense because they knew they were pretty much done at that point. Um, I'm sure the original version of Phoenix had one, but we'll get into that eventually. Wait till we get to we're, Phoenix. It's, it's, it's just really me screaming thing. into a microphone for about two hours straight. <laughs> I've looked up so much research, you have no idea. I could take you through the entire version of a movie that was filmed somewhere. Anyway... I'm still amazed that Blu-ray has a commentary from Kenberg. That's going to yep. be interesting. <laughs> that's going to be a painful commentary. Listen, I assume he's just sobbing the entire time. Oh, it's like the repo commentary. <laughs> I've actually, I've listened to this commentary, and he's uh, mostly in good spirits the whole time. I think they must have recorded it, like, before the movie came out. He's been very diplomatic. Yeah. He Anyways, that's for the future. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get to my we'll get anger there. and disgust and just lobbying against capitalism. <laughs> so I'm convinced we'll that kid was... X1 and X2. I'm convinced the kid who played Ronnie was cast because his name was James Kirk. Uh, this fact has probably been shared multiple times, and I've just forgotten it multiple times. But 
the singer on one of the commentary tracks mentions he was like an assistant on Street Trash. Oh, that blew your mind too. Yeah, I, I like I, I could have sworn like that's the kind of detail I assume Joe Bob Briggs would have mentioned at some point. How, how did I just find out about this now? Of all things, fucking street trash. How do you go from street trash to like, hey, here's a hundred million dollars, <laughs> go make an X two? I mean, what a world. You never know where you're going to end up. The director of X-Men was probably on set the day of that weird penis gag scene. For all we know, that might have been his idea. That's a dark joke now. Yeah, I suppose. Street Trash is not good, by the way, but I do kind of love it. Okay. Street Trash may be the worst film I've ever seen. It's pretty fucking bad. I really want to live in that tire dome, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> those kid, those homeless children have it made, and they're to home made of tires. That has a couch. That movie wants to be the stuff so bad. <laughs> Oof. I, I don't even know if that's true. The stuff had, like, a very driving plot behind it. Street Trash is... Street Trash is, it's the 80s, so we hate homeless people. Pretty much. Mm. It's it's evil. Like, it's not just a very bad movie. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not the mangler, Jamie. It's not alive. It's just an evil fucking print. <laughs> I'm glad we ended this X-Men 2, X-Men United commentary on a Street Trash conversation. Mike, there's four more minutes of, of uh, credits to roll we here. We don't have we, to we talk can... through the credits, but I do want to say, X-Men 2 not only holds up, but I think is actually better than it was. I think it exceeds itself now. Yeah. I really dig it. I, I think most of my favorite X-Men franchise moments happen in this film. Uh, yeah, Magneto's nice. Escape, the opening attack with Nightcrawler, uh, just just so many little moments like that just... It all is here. It's in this movie. I can't think of too many iconic things from X3 I really love. Maybe maybe Juggernaut's appearance. But that that's more like the end for fight a little bit. Yeah. That's pretty we cool. The best mystique moments in this movie? I don't know. Most of my favorite stuff is really in this film. Yeah. It's a kind of a perfect X-Men movie. I mean, it's such a good comic book movie. We've talked about this that the early MCU movies and a lot of comic book movies after this kind of aped the X2 structure the same way so many movies aped the Empire Strikes Back structure. Oh, well, even this one, I would say, it's kind of doing the Empire Strikes Back. There's a, a lot of bit. dark moments here. It's fascinating watching, like, the Fantastic Four movies and seeing Fox just do the same thing with those. Like, especially uh, Rise of the Silver Surfer is very X-Men 2. Very much so. Huh. Boy. I, I I go a long time without ever thinking of those kind of failed early Marvel movies. Every once in a while I just think, I should binge those. I should just sit down and watch like Ghost Rider and in Fantastic Four 1 and 2 and, and just feel miserable. Like I should it, it's like just when you decide to eat a full gallon of chocolate ice cream. Well, it's 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 funny whenever you hear people dunking on failed franchises now and stuff like the dark universe it's like in the 2000s like that was the graveyard of the the lost franchise 
dead. I mean, even look at looking at X Men, that change like the universe they were building was scuttled so many times throughout that series, and it was has only stopped being scuttled this year with its complete discontinuation. <laughs> You can't throw it out anymore. It's already dead. Maybe. Let's see how this last one does that we're finally releasing. I mean, Corporate even the bullshit had to happen for it to finally be scuttled permanently. All right. Imagine this. The New Mutants comes out and fucking makes bank like $500 million. And now Disney has to decide what the hell they're going to do. Uh, Disney's very petty. I don't think they'd care. <laughs> That's true. They have enough money where they can shrug it off. But oh, I like this, the idea of them making more... Pretty much. Uh, And we get all the the money because we fired everyone who would be paid normally. (laughs) They're on a yacht that's floating, like, just slightly above the ground. (laughs) They have that technology. Oh, yeah, that's probably part of the new park. Well, folks, we have made it to the end of X2, X-Men United. I don't have anything more, like, deep to say than that. We have finished watching the movie. Thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to hear more of our commentaries or our normal episodes that aren't commentaries, you can find us under Box Office Pulp on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher. Just look for Box Office Pulp. And Mike, where can they find you on the interwebs? You can find my horror movie reviews and retrospectives in written form on horrormovieshub.com. And be sure to also look out for Rachel Rock's Horror on YouTube by subscribing to Final Girl Productions. And Jamie. You can find me on my YouTube show, Comic Macabre. There'll be a link in the description. And you can find me on Twitter, at MondoFunky and at Comic Macabre. Please don't find me. Anyways, uh, folks, thank you so much for listening to our com. No, I'm desperate for, fa- or I'm desperate for Twitter followers. We can pimp our fucking personal Twitter accounts. I thought it would just anger Cody. I'm at Lucky Duck Napier. No, you don't get followers. If you do, okay, folks at home, folks at home, you can follow Mike. That's fine. You can follow Jamie. That's fine. But if you follow either of them, you also have to follow me. Them's the rules. It's true. Love me, love MacGyver. (laughs) It's a team effort here. You got to follow all of our shitty tweets. Anyways, this has been X2. This has been Box Office Pulp. Hell out of here. This credits went so long, I don't have anything to say for the after credit scene. Jamie, yell Wolverine. Wolverine! You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. Oh, damn, that came through really nice. Yeah, that did. That was great. (laughs) That was really professional sounding. I really liked that. It sounded like you're trying to make your own ringtone. That was great. Yeah, the after credit scene is going to be us praising your performance saying Wolverine. That was actually really awesome. Good, good job. Legitimately, Andy. fantastic. That yeah. was the best thing we did the entire episode. Nice. The I gals got pipes. <laughs> I just want to say the goat. The one I was going to go for before you said that was, you should have ended the commentary when you had the chance. <laughs> oh, I like that one too. Uh, the Wolverine was better. That was good, but the Wolverine was just on such another level. Okay, we'll include that one in the after credit scene, too. Good ideas all around, everybody. Good job. Good job. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.